0: If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Everyone, my name is DeVore and you are listening to episode 33 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, if this is your first time listening, please go and check out the earlier episodes of this show and make sure you're subscribed so you keep up to date with new episodes as they come out. Today's episode is the final installment, what I'm kind of dubbing the Empire trilogy. It's kind of these three episodes going all the way back to the last episode of 2021, which is the episode on Rogue One, and then the previous episode to this, the episode on super weapons. And now we've got this one. I think they all kind of fit thematically kind of together. So I'm kind of thinking of them as a bundle of three episodes. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about fascism. So, fascism and the history of fascist regimes was an important inspiration for. George Lucas in the making of Star Wars. You see it reflected in The Galactic Empire in the original trilogy, and we see it even informing the story of the prequels and the story of the downfall of the Republic and the rise of the Galactic Empire. So I want to take an episode and just talk a little bit about fascism. Because it is a concept that's well known as a term that gets used fairly regularly, particularly in the last couple of years, but it's a concept that's a little bit fluid in terms of what it actually means. And that's why I'm actually going to start this episode by talking about some of the definitional challenges and trying to understand exactly what fascism is, because it's, actually, it's, it's more complicated than it seems, as I'll get into. So i will talk a little bit about that, kind of define some of the important elements of fascist ideology, then go into some of the history of fascism in the early 20th century, how and why it emerges, talk about it particularly in the context of Italy and Germany, and then kind of go through the period you know between the first and the Second World Wars when fascism kind of rises to power. and then a little bit of course about World War II. And then also you know talk about some of the connections between the regimes of fascism and the ideology of fascism and what we see in some of the, political entities that appear in the Star Wars galaxy. So uh, it's gonna be a good one. So before we get into any kind of history or anything or talking about what happens in Europe in the decades in between the world wars when fascism really rises to power, we gotta first really define what this term means. And as I've already indicated, there are some conceptual difficulties when it comes to saying what exactly fascism is. Again, as I mentioned, it's a term that it gets used a lot in popular connotations, but everybody kind of has their own understanding of what it is. It's kind of loosely defined. So I want to try to make it a little bit more concrete to the extent possible, because it is a genuine challenge. And a lot of different scholars have had a lot of different debates about how exactly do you define what fascism is and its origins and so on and so forth. So there's a couple different reasons why this is an issue. And so I want to talk about those first. Why is fascism so difficult to define? So part of the challenge is actually born by Fascists themselves, fascists weren't particularly good at really defining their worldview in particularly clear ways. So fascists and fascism, when it emerged in the early 20th century, claimed to represent a quote-unquote third way. So fascists claimed that their ideology transcended the traditional divides of the political left and the political right. So between your more, let's say, the kind of revolutionary left, whether you're talking about in its more kind of moderate form, sort of like a kind of traditional liberalism, as we might think about in the U.S., all the way to socialism and communism and all that. And then on the right, when you talk about your more sort of conservatism, standing for the traditional order and such, fascism kind of claimed to transcend both of those divides and be a kind of there's a determined political science that's uh, that is syncretic, which means it's a a worldview or an ideology that blends together elements of different other ideologies. So because fascism claimed to have this, sort of syncretic or, you know, synthetic quality, where it was in bringing together different elements into this kind of new third way. It means that one of the things that we see both in terms of fascist ideology, so in terms of their their writing and their speeches and what they say they're about. And then when you look at actual fascism in practice, when it is in power, it means that fascism is kind of all over the place in terms of its commitments. So you will see, for instance, that in certain contexts, fascists and fascist regimes are pro-business and they're pro-capitalist. Other times, however, they are not, and they rally against capitalism and against big business. Sometimes fascism is revolutionary. So there are certain circumstances in which fascism wants to create an entirely different kind of society and order and do away with tradition in the past and the way things are done and look to the future other times fascism is reactionary which is to say that it is positioning itself against new movements and new developments and actually wants to steer certain elements of let's say the government or society back towards the past in some moments, fascists embrace tradition. In other times, they embrace modernity. They embrace change. So it's really complicated in that way that there isn't there isn't the kind of ideological consistency that we might be traditionally used to. They're really kind of all over the map. So that's one of the challenges in terms of defining fascism. Because when you try to when you try to do these kind of black and white questions, right? So if you say, you know, if you say, is fascism revolutionary, you know, is it trying to upend the established order or is it reactionary? You know, is it trying to maintain a, a certain order, a certain way that things are against change? You know, is it forward looking you know, is it looking to the future? Is it looking to create something new? Or is it backward looking? You know, is it looking to the past and looking to some sort of old order that is trying to reestablish? The answer to those kind of questions is yes. It's trying to do all of these things at once in different contexts. So that's one of the issues that you come up in terms of saying, well, what is fascism? What does fascism want? Fascism wants all sorts of things. So that's one of the challenges. My second one, and it's kind of related to that one, is that fascism is oftentimes both by, again, by fascists themselves as well as by third-party observers, by people who study it and people who sort of have looked at these regimes, fascism is often defined as much, if not more, by what it's against than by what it's for. So when you look at a lot of definitions of fascism and you look at, you know, you ask everybody, like, what is fascism? What, What constitutes it? You get a lot of antis. So you will get like, oh, well, fascism is anti-democratic. It is anti-individualist. It is anti-socialist. It is anti-feminist. All of those things are true. But then the question is like, well, then what was it for? What did it actually want to do? We, we, we have a very clear idea of the different movements and ideologies and worldviews that fascists traditionally opposed. But then when you come to the flip side of what what did they actually want to institute? What was the kind of positive vision? And by, by positive vision, I don't mean like the good side of fascism. I mean positive in the sense of what was it for When you try to look at that, it becomes a little more challenging. And again, that's a challenge that's introduced by fascists themselves. They spend a lot of time talking about the things that they were against and the various enemies that they were trying to defeat. But then when you try to get to, well, what are they actually trying to build? What are they actually supporting? It becomes a little, you know, they talk about it, of course, we'll we'll get into that. But uh, it's emphasized relatively less compared to the various enemies and threats that they saw out there. So that's another issue is this anti-pro element that there's a kind of imbalance when we talk about fascism the third the third kind of difficulty in terms of defining fascism comes less from either self-described fascists themselves or about their regimes and it more comes to how the term has gotten used particularly we would say in a post-world war ii world which is that fascism has come to have a very loose and broad definition. And so as it has gone out of the specific context of, let's say, talking about any particular regime, like let's say the regime in Italy or the regime in Germany, once the term kind of enters a more popular parlance, it loses some of the coherence in terms of its meaning. And actually this started happening very, very quickly, even in fascism's lifetime. In terms of the height of its power. So George Orwell, he writes this essay in 1946, Politics in the English Language. And in there, he writes that, quote, the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. So you know, so, so fascism is this word that's kind of become like a, a way to signify thing bad in a very you know, broad way. And you've seen the term fascism and fascist being applied in all sorts of contexts. So for example, you've you've seen it used to describe at various points, let's say, the regime in the Soviet Union and Soviet communism. That has been described as a kind of fascism. So the application of this label and you know taking it out of its particular historical context and then trying to slap it on various different individuals or movements or political parties and such has also kind of contributed to diluting the definition and making it a lot harder to understand, well, what is particular about fascism, what made it is what makes it distinct as a political ideology and a worldview. So for all these reasons, it's it's been hard to define fascism, so much so that you've had you know, debates among different historians and political scientists about the extent to which fascism really even represents a coherent ideology or worldview. But you know, for our purposes, we will try to kind of introduce a at least what we could consider a working definition of fascism, something that for the purposes of this conversation and this topic, will work. And will give us a pretty good idea of what fascism was attempting to achieve, the kind of political, social, and economic system that fascists and fascist regimes aspire to, even if in practice, and a lot of times we will give some examples, they weren't always able to achieve them. So my starting point is going to be a definition given by one scholar of fascism, a guy by the name of Kevin Passmore. And he defines fascism in part as, quote, a set of ideologies and practices that seeks to place the nation defined in exclusive biological, cultural, and or historical terms above all other sources of loyalty and to create a mobilized national community. So That's our basic one sentence definition of what fascism is. So it's this ideology wants to place, that, that takes this notion of the nation and elevates it above different forms of loyalty and tries to create a mobilized national community. Now, what does that mean? Let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. So I have laid out what I consider to be the five pillars of fascism. So the, these are each going to kind of flesh out this one sentence working starting definition and will give us it's, it's not a comprehensive these five do not by any means encompass all of the different elements of fascism and i think frankly it's impossible for any kind of definition to be able to wrap its arms completely around the entirety of fascism but i think these five pillars are going to give us a pretty comprehensive idea of what fascism is and stands for. So we've got five different isms here that we'll get into and go into some detail. So let us start with the first, which is arguably the cornerstone and maybe the most important and is it's kind of an SAT word, so very palingetic ultranationalism. Alright, now that the majority of listeners have turned off the podcast, and there are now only two of you listening. Let me talk a little bit about what palingenetic ultranationalism is. <laughs> so let's start actually with the, the second word first. Let's talk about what nationalism is, because nationalism is arguably the beating heart of fascism. So nationalism is a philosophy, an ideology, a worldview, whatever, Now you want to slap on it there, that promotes the interests of a nation. And believes that members of a particular nation should rule themselves. So the, the way that you actually define the notion of a nation. And what makes up a nation will vary depending on the context. In certain cases it is defined racially. So that only members of a particular race belong to the nation. We will see that when we get to Nazi Germany. Nations can also be defined historically or through cultures. So you can say that A nation is a group of people that have a certain shared past or that have certain common set of cultural values and beliefs. So the actual definition of a nation kind of varies depending on where you're looking. And yeah, then there's the second element, which is the notion of nations being able to rule themselves. So that's where we get the notion of uh, or the idea of a nation state. So the idea that A political entity or a political unit, a state, a government, should encompass a particular national group. So there should be a Polish state for Polish people, for example. There should be an Italian state for Italian people, things like that. There should be a French state for French people, for the French nation. So that is the the kind of basic essence of what nationalism is. Fascism couples a kind of extreme commitment to this notion of nationalism. So that's where we get the ultra in the ultra nationalism. It it couples this with this notion of palingenesis. And basically what palingenesis means is national rebirth. So central to fascist ideology is not only a strong belief and commitment to the nation. So the idea of having a national community that is homogenous, right, where everybody within that community is the same. And again, that sameness you can define in different ways. So you could define that sameness racially. You could define that sameness in terms of in you know, culture or values or a kind of shared past and common history. So that you have a belief in that, a belief in a national community that should be tightly bound together that should rule itself. And you combine this with this notion of national rebirth. So central to a lot of fascist ideology is the notion that the nation has fallen from a prior state of greatness. So that there was some imagined moment in the past when the nation was at its kind of height when it was great when it was powerful when it was respected when it was wealthy what have you but that now in the present however you define that present whether that present is literally now as we speak or the present of early 20th century europe when fascism emerges in the present the nation has become less than it is weak it is decadent it is corrupt it is Racially impure or impure in other ways. And so the objective of the fascist regime is to restore national greatness. So it is to remove the elements or the individuals that are seen as weakening the national community and returning the nation to its prior state of greatness. So that is that, that in short, is the essence of this notion of palingenetic ultranationalism. It is this extreme adherence to a national community and kind of elevating the interests of the nation and its importance, combining this with this notion of national rebirth, of a return to a prior state of greatness. So that's one of the pillars of fascism. That is the first pillar that we talk about, palingenetic ultranationalism. Moving on to the second pillar, and that is totalitarianism. So totalitarianism, interesting enough, is a term that we can get from fascism. It was a term coined by Italian fascists to describe the kind of state and society that they wanted to build. And so the essence of totalitarianism is that the state, the government, exercises absolute or total control over all aspects of society. So that is Politics, culture, the economy, civil society, so that means different clubs and organizations and so on and so forth, family life and so on, schooling, education, stuff like that. So the state exercises total control over every other element of the society. The the state penetrates all of those facets of society and of life, and The interests of all various units within society, be that the individual, families, businesses, churches, etc., are subordinate to the state. So totalitarianism elevates the state as the most important, the kind of central guiding force within society, and then subordinates everything else. And so connecting us back to this notion of ultranationalism, the first pillar, that for fascists, the state is the embodiment of the nation. So there's the notion that the state, the government, embodies and represents the will, the interests, the good of the nation and the national community. And as such, because the state represents the national interest, the interest of the national community and the good of the national group, however that is defined, all other elements of society, families, businesses, churches, school, etc., are mobilized to serve the interests of the state. So that's the kind of totalitarian quality where the state penetrates all of these other elements of society and then organizes them and guides them in such a way that they serve the interests of the state, and then by extension, the interests of the national community. So I've got a couple, as we kind of go through this definition of fascism, I've got a couple quotes sprinkled in here from, uh, there's a famous essay that Benito Mussolini, who we'll talk about more in a few minutes, writes called The Doctrine of Fascism, where he lays out some of the elements of fascist ideology. And so I kind of bring these in here to illustrate These ideas. So I get a couple lines from him here where he sort of talks about this notion of totalitarianism. So Mussolini writes that, quote, the fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with those of the state, which stands for the conscience and the universal will of man as a historic entity. So you see there in that definition, that notion of elevating the interests of the state above all else, including. the the good or the interest of the individual and this notion of the state as being this kind of embodiment of the people and of the nation. A few more quotes here. Quote, The fascist conception of the state is all-embracing. Outside of it, no human or spiritual values can exist, much less have value. The fascist state, a synthesis and a unit inclusive of all values, interprets, develops, and potentates the whole life of a people. So there's that idea of the state encompassing all elements and being involved in all facets of society and making its presence known to all people at all times in whatever capacity, when they're going, when they're at home with their families, when they're at work, when they're at school— People can see and feel and recognize the presence of the state in their lives at all times. And then one last quote here from him The state, as conceived and realized by fascism, is a spiritual and ethical entity for securing the political, juridical, and economic organization of the nation, an organization which, in its origins and growth, is a manifestation of the spirit. The state guarantees the internal and external safety of the country but it also safeguards and transmits the spirit of the people, elaborated down the ages in its language, its customs, its faith. So here's where he's kind of getting to this idea of the state being the embodiment of the nation. So what he's saying is that the fascist state not only performs the traditional duties that we associate with government, so providing police, army, courts, etc., but it is also this kind of receptacle and vessel for what the people are. So the notion of, so, you know, if we use... If we use Italy, for example, so the Italian state under fascism is meant to represent the Italian people themselves and to embody the essence of what it means to be an Italian. And the goal of one of the things that the state will do is to transmit that to future generations, to be this means of preserving Italianness or Italian national identity, however that gets defined through language, through custom through a shared history, and so on and so forth. So it is this very, very expansive understanding and definition of the role that the state plays in the lives of individuals. And you can see that kind of reflected in the very name and the iconography of fascism. So the, the term fascism comes from, uh, actually from an object coming back from ancient Uh, Rome, which is the, it's an object called the fasces, And the fasces was, what it is basically is it's a bundle of branches or sticks like wood, and they're tied together, sometimes it's inserted with an axe. And it was an ancient Roman symbol of authority. And the idea, whether the kind of symbolism is if you take one of the branches or one of the rods, you can break it easily. But if you take them all and bundle them together, they're stronger, like you can't really break them. And so it's the symbol of you know, strength through unity. And so that is what fascism is kind of aspiring to, this notion of taking all the individuals in society, taking all of the different units, taking schools, taking churches, taking business families, and uniting them together. And then through that kind of unity, there is a strength that is achieved. And so naturally, as one, one can imagine, this Form of totalitarianism, this notion of totalitarianism, the notion of a state that has this kind of all encompassing presence within the people, within larger society, is not particularly compatible with democracies we traditionally understand. It. And so, hence, fascism itself is outwardly anti democratic. So, again, to quote Mussolini quote, Fascism is opposed to that form of democracy which equates a nation to the majority, lowering it to the level of the largest number. But it is the purest form of democracy if the nation be considered as it should be, from the point of view of quality rather than quantity, as an idea, the mightiest, because the most ethical, the most coherent, the truest expressing itself in a people, as the conscience and the will of the few, if not indeed of one, an ending to express itself in the conscience and the will of the mass of the whole group ethnically molded by natural and historical conditions into a nation, advancing as one conscience and one will along the self line of development and spiritual formation. Okay, that does not make a lot of sense, admittedly. I will say, Mussolini uses a lot of these buzzwords and phrases when he talks about spirit and such, and it's like, what is he talking about? But what he is saying there... And talking about democracies, he says that the problem with democracy, as he sees it, is that it relies solely on the notion of majority rule. So, whatever the majority of people support is what the state does. Whereas, what he says is that the state should not represent the will or the desires of some numerical majority of the people who happen to live under the state's rule, the state needs to be this embodiment of a particular national group. And so for that reason, fascism stands against democracy. So, yeah, so that's, so that's the, the basics of what he is saying there, that the state is not there to implement the will or to carry out the wishes of, you know, 50 plus one of the population the state is there to be a representative of and the embodiment of a particular national group and community and identity and to transmit that through time and and to unite the people in service of the interests of the nation. So totalitarianism manifests under fascism in a variety of ways, and we will get into some of that when we actually talk about totalitarianism in practice. So you see, for instance, a police state so you see a heavy use of propaganda that's really really important in fascist regimes and as again to make our kind of first star wars connection is something that we see when we look at for example the galactic empire if you think back to you know season one of star wars rebels and we see the whole episode on empire day and some of the propaganda there where there's, you know, there's that moment in Old Joe's in the cantina where that TIE fighter pilot shows up and he says that, well, imperial regulations say that you have to have the, the hollow at on at all times. So, you know, rules that, that require the transmission of imperial news to the citizens at all times. You've got the parade, you've got marches and things like that. So, yeah, so propaganda is an important element to totalitarian regimes, and important element to fascist regimes. So that's our, that's our second pillar. So we've got, we've got the nationalist pillar, we've got totalitarianism. Third pillar that's kind of connected in a lot of ways to the first two is militarism. So fascism sought to introduce a military ethos into the state. And by extension, to all aspects of society. So, fascists aspired to model government and then to model all of the rest of society along military lines or military structures. So, that would be, you know, that would be defined by hierarchical organization. So, a very clear top down chain of command, strict obedience, everybody. on the the lower end of the chain obeying everybody on the, the next person up in the chain and so on and so forth so they believe in these very strict notions of hierarchy and command and control and obedience and leaders that kind of guide and direct all of the underlings below them so again to quote Mussolini quote far from crushing the individual The fascist state multiplies his energies just as in a regiment a soldier is not diminished but multiplied by the number of his fellow soldiers. So you see a lot of that military analogy to what the fascists are doing. That the fascists see the state organizing and coordinating people and society the same way that military leaders, the way that generals might command and guide troops in battle where they lay out a certain strategy. This is what everybody needs to do and then coordinate. So like the, like this battalion over here does this. This group over here does that. They saw a similar role and purpose for the state that. The state would organize both itself and then by extension all of the rest of society and give these kind of marching orders that everybody would do what they needed to do in order to ensure that the larger objective, the larger interests of the state and of the nation are served. So connected to that, connected to this notion of militarism, of trying to copy the military model of organization and command and spread it through society and making it the, the kind of defining way that society is run and organized. Related to that is that within fascism, there is a celebration of violence and of war. So here, I'll quote Mussolini some more. So he says, quote, Fascism does not, generally speaking, believe in the possibility or utility of perpetual peace. It therefore discards pacifism as a cloak for cowardly supine renunciation in contradistinction to self-sacrifice. War alone keys up all human energies to their maximum tension and sets the seal of nobility on those peoples who have the courage to face it. All other tests are substitutes which never place a man face-to-face with himself before the alternative of life or death. Therefore, all doctrines which postulate peace at all costs are incompatible with fascism. And then another quote. Fascism sees in the imperialistic spirit, i.e. in the tendency of nations to expand, a manifestation of their vitality. In the opposite tendency, which would limit their interests to the home country, it sees a symptom of decadence. So fascism saw violence and conflict, both by individuals and then by nations, as this kind of force of elevation that through engaging in violence, through engaging in conflict, people could be raised to higher states. And so there is this kind of glorification of violence and war that happens in the fascist regimes. And in a few minutes, when we get to talking about the rise of fascism, we'll talk about the specific historical context for that, because it is very much rooted in the experiences of the early 20th century. So there is that. That is also crucially connected to this notion of militarism is this elevation of violence as not something that is bad, but as something that can purify individuals, that can make them stronger, that can make them better, that can make them reach these heights heretofore unseen. And, you know, when we think about that, when we think about that militarism angle, and particularly that element of the celebration of violence, I think there we can also see some parallels in star wars so you know as i was writing these notes and thinking about this element what i thought of immediately is the Sith code which expresses a very similar idea so there's so what it says is quote peace is a lie. there is only passion through passion i gain strength through strength i gain power through power i gain victory through victory my chains are broken that whole notion everything that is in there is very compatible with fascism and is a notion that fascists like Mussolini would very much agree with and would fit very well with their own worldview and ideology. This idea that giving into passionate emotions and the desire to fight and to engage in violence, that this makes you stronger, makes you more powerful, and ultimately achieves a kind of personal victory. So yeah, that is the that, that is a third of our fifth pillars of fascism, is militarism. Number four, social Darwinism. So social Darwinism is not actually unique to fascism. It's, it's a worldview and a philosophy that kind of predates fascism. It is a movement that emerged in the late 19th century, so a few decades before we actually see the emergence of fascism. And it emerges in the wake of Charles Darwin's discovery of natural selection and his publication of Origin of Species. And what social Darwinism and social Darwinists attempted to do was to apply ideas of Darwinian evolution to society. So Darwin had come up with this idea of natural selection, this notion that species evolve over time because certain members of the species have traits that make them more adaptable to a particular environment, or let's say to get a particular food source, and then over time that particular trait becomes more prominent. And of course, Darwin imagined this process taking place over hundreds of thousands of millions of years, but social Darwinists imagined that they could take these ideas, particularly the notion of survival of the fittest, the idea that those who are most fit, i.e. those who are most adapted to a particular environment or circumstance are the ones who survive and go on to reproduce. They thought that they could take these ideas and apply them to society. And so one of the goals of social Darwinist movements was to ensure the propagation, the reproduction of the quote-unquote fittest within society, and then by extension, the unfit, those who were deemed to be unfit, were to be weeded out. They were, they were to not be allowed to reproduce and to continue passing on their quote-unquote unfit traits to future generations. So fashion is going to embrace this notion, embrace this notion of fitness and passing on quote-unquote, fit traits and making sure that the, quote-unquote, fittest individuals carry on. And they incorporate it into their political ideology and worldview. And so one of the things that we see with fascism is that there is an outright rejection of the notion of equality. So, you know, and this is something that, I mean, a lot of, you can say this about a lot of different elements of fascism, but this is something that, for instance, that, that, very clearly distinguishes fascism from some of its contemporaries. So if you look at, like, let's say, communism at this time, if you look at the Soviet Union in the early 20th century, the Soviet Union has all sorts of inequalities baked within its society. But there is a kind of nominal and ideological commitment to equality the regime is saying that everyone is equal that everyone is part of a working class even if when you look at it in practice you see that for instance those in power or those members of the party have more resources or have greater standing than let's say your ordinary soviet citizen there is still that kind of nominal ideological commitment to equality fascists don't even have that They reject the whole notion out front that people are in any way inherently equal. So again, to go back to Mussolini's doctrine of fascism. So in there he writes that fascism, quote, asserts the irremediable and fertile and beneficent inequality of men. So fascists believe that some people are innately better, stronger, smarter, more superior than others. And again, when we get to particularly when we get to talking about Nazi Germany, we will see the very heavy race element that gets injected into that, where you get the notion of a biological racial superior that certain races are inherently better than others. So yeah, so there again, you know, all of this can kind of connect back to what we were talking about in the previous pillar with militarism and hierarchy. So. Fascists believe in this kind of natural hierarchy of individuals where there are some people who are just naturally stronger and fitter and then by extension better than other people. And by extension, those people are more fit to be in power and to rule than others. And then kind of connected to that and connected to the social Darwinist idea is there is a strong embrace within fascism and fascist regimes of traditional gender roles. So when you talk about militarism, when we talk about the glorification of violence and all that, all that is tied into notions of masculinity. So the idea is that men are the ones who are going out and they're the ones fighting. They are the ones who are in charge. They're the ones who are kind of guiding the state and are in political power. And then women, on the other hand, their roles are principally domestic. For fascist regimes, the role of women was primarily to raise the next generation and to inculcate proper values into them. So to raise children who will be obedient to the nation and who will fulfill their state-prescribed duties and roles. And as I sort of talked about already, race is really important to A lot of the social Darwinist thinking within fascism, although there are certain complexities and nuances within that race in particular is something that distinguishes the ideology that we see emerge in Germany with Nazism from other contemporary fascists. The the role of race within fascism is is a little complicated and we'll get into that when we actually talk about the actual history of fascism. But if you look, for instance, again, if we go to Mussolini and Doctrine of Fascism and the way that he defines a nation, he writes that a nation was, quote, not a race, nor a geographically defined region, but a people historically perpetuating itself, a multitude unified by an idea and imbued with the will to live, the will to power, self-consciousness, personality. So for Mussolini, at least early on, he didn't see nation and race as being inextricably bound together his notions of the nation and national identity again at the outset tended to have more to do with culture and history and shared values when you look for instance at by contrast at the nazi regime even from the very beginning before the nazis even take power race is deeply deeply intertwined with their notions of the nation and national identity and who's German and who isn't. And that is a thing that kind of, at the outset, really sets Nazism apart, which is that it takes fascist ideology that's already out there and then just rams race all the way through it to a point that it's utterly inseparable. But again, that is something that we will touch on more when we get to the actual history of fascist regimes in power. So we've got the four pillars, and now we've got the final the final fifth pillar of fascism that we'll be talking about here anyway, and that is corporatism. So corporatism is is the ism that kind of covers fascism's views and ideas on the economy. And it kind of connects back to the notion of totalitarianism. So corporatism, under what fascists kind of understood as corporatism, Corporatism involved state management of the economy and of relations between different economic classes to serve the interests of the state. So the idea in corporatism was that the state would serve this kind of force as this kind of force to ensure that business, that the economy, that relations between workers and bosses were all acting in service of the interests of the state and the nation. And so the the state would serve there as a role both to kind of coordinate and organize and also to ensure harmony between the different economic classes. Because again, going back to the social Darwinism pillar, fascists don't believe in equality. So fascists don't have a problem with economic class. They don't have the notion that a problem with the notion that some people let's say are wealthier richer than other people. They're totally fine with that because they see that as a reflection of, well, some people are just inherently smarter, stronger, better than other people. But they did think that there was a role for the state in ensuring a kind of unity and harmony among the classes and particularly ensuring that there wouldn't be any kind of class conflict that might come into conflict with the interests of the state. So then related to that is fascism's rejection of socialism and of this notion of class struggle. So again, going back to Mussolini, fascism is opposed to trade unionism as a class weapon. But when brought within the orbit of the state, fascism recognizes the real needs which give rise to socialism and trade unionism, giving them due weight in the guild or corporative system in which divergent interests are coordinated and harmonized in the unity of the state. So Mussolini's they're saying is that, is that labor unions and you know working class organizations they're bad if they are a means to do class conflict. So, so unions are bad if they are about you know, overthrowing the bosses and about launching strikes and all that. But they're okay if they are brought within the control of the state. If they are, in essence, a kind of arm or appendage of the state that the state can then use as a means of ensuring harmony between workers and bosses and ensuring that everybody is working together to serve the interests of the state and the nation and so again going back to something that i talked about at the beginning of this episode in terms of the ideological commitments of fascism being kind of all over the place Fascism in the realm of economics really advocated what we might call a mixed economy. So in other words, a blend of both state and private ownership. So in, if you look at fascist economies in, let's say, Italy or in Germany, you still have private businesses, you still have big businesses playing a role in the economy, but you also have some state-owned enterprises there as well. Again, it really kind of the operating principle again for the fascist regime is what is in the perceived or alleged interest of the national community, whatever that is. If if that is in one context, private ownership, then that's good there. If in another context, it's state management and running of a particular sector industry, then you do that. So yeah, so you get this kind of mixed system. So one of the other things that you see that related to that is that... Unlike, for instance, a lot of political conservatives, part of the kind of traditional right, fascists didn't believe in a inerrant right to property. So for fascists, personal property, private property, or even business property could be seized Businesses could be nationalized. They could be taken over if it was deemed in the interests of the nation. Because again, fascists don't really believe in individualism or individual rights. They see individuals and the needs and the interests of individuals as being subordinate to the needs and the interests of the state. So yeah, so, so they have a kind of different view on the economy in that way. So there we've got a kind of basic understanding of the different elements of fascism. And we've talked about our five elements of fascism. And again, I'll just kind of recap them quickly. So you've got palingenetic ultranationalism, totalitarianism, militarism, social Darwinism, and then corporatism. So now that we've gotten that foundation down in terms of understanding what fascism is, what it stands for, what kind of state and society it is trying to achieve. We can now transition to talking actually about the rise of fascism itself and how it comes to power in the years after the First World War in Europe. So when we talk about why does fascism emerge as a political ideology, and then particularly why does it take off and why does it have the kind of popular support that it ends up getting, there's a lot of different factors. So first, we have to talk a little bit about some of the pre 20th century factors because even before you get into world war one we see a lot of the the scenes we see a lot of the different forces that are going to end up informing both what fascism stands for and then also what fascism kind of positions itself against so And we've talked already about the importance of nationalism to fascism. Well, nationalism is this force is very much growing and becoming ascendant over the course of the 19th century, over the course of the 1800s. So nationalism first really emerges actually in the late 1700s. It comes out of the French Revolution, and then what we see over the course of the 19th century is that there are a number of nationalist revolutions. So all throughout Europe, you're seeing different national communities, particularly in some of these larger empires like the Austrian Empire, which encompasses a lot of different groups of people. You see a lot of agitation by different national minorities who are looking to break away and form their own states. So if you look in, for instance, uh, in southeastern Europe, in the Balkans, you have Nationalist revolutions break out there by the Serbs, by the Greeks, by the Albanians, by the Bulgarians, and they're kind of trying to break away from the Ottoman Empire. If you go to the Austrian Empire, which is a little north, you get to see the Hungarians, you get to see other ethnic minorities within Austria trying to agitate and break away and form their own states. So you're seeing this kind of ascendant nationalism in the 19th century where you're starting to see groups of people identifying and say, hey, we're all Hungarians, for example. We should have our own state. There should be a Hungarian state for Hungarian people. Or, hey, we're all Bulgarians. There should be a Bulgarian state for Bulgarian people and things like that. And it is part of this ascendant nationalism that we see the creation of new states and particularly we see the forging crucially of Italy and Germany so Italy as a state is formed in the 1860s and then Germany is formed in the 1870s prior to this there were there was not a unified Italian or German state instead if you look at the Italian peninsula or if you look at the area of central Europe that we now think of as Germany there were actually smaller regional states, but because of this kind of growing nationalist sentiment, you start having people saying, hey, well, we're all Germans, we shall all be part of one German state, or hey, we're all Italians, we should all be part of one Italian state. And so in the 1860s, you see on the Italian peninsula a series of wars of unification to bring together all the Italian states into more or less what we now know as Italy. And then in the 1870s, you see wars of unification breaking out among the German states to unify and bring together and create a German state, which is considerably larger than Germany as we know it now. So you've got nationalism there as an important factor. You also have in the 19th century, you have the emergence, particularly in the kind of late 19th century, you have the ascendancy of imperialism. So you have in the latter decades of the 19th century, you have what is known as the scramble for Africa, where you have a lot of the major European powers, particularly Britain and France. And then later in the game, Germany and Italy show up after they actually become states starting to claim colonies, particularly the African continent, but also out in Asia. So you've got imperialism there emerging and this idea of the, the way that nations can become greater and stronger is by going abroad and taking colonies and building these empires so that's going to be something that's important that kind of feeds into fascism i've already talked a little bit about social darwinism by the time you get to the end of the 19th century that is a movement that is starting to pick up steam and you've got you know, the emergence of you know what we don't know is eugenics and you've got different people saying well how can we ensure that the fittest individuals are able to kind of pass on their traits to future generations and then how can we keep the unfit from continuing so you've got social darwinism there and then in addition to those ideas so all those that are going to kind of go into the funnel of what is fascism you also start seeing in particularly in the 19th century the emergence of and the growth of movements that fascism is going to position itself against so you see early waves of feminism and you see the women's rights movement particularly organizing around the right to vote you see the emergence of socialism and communism and so on and so forth so you've got all of these different movements these ideas that are in one way or another going to be part of the stew of fascism. Either ideas that fascism is going to absorb as part of its own kind of ideological worldview and incorporate, or it is those movements of worldviews that fascism is going to come out and say, we don't want that. We're opposed to what these people over here are trying to do. So that's all the the pre-20th century stuff. Then when we actually get into the 20th century, the really important force that ends up accelerating and providing the catalyst for the emergence of fascism is the outbreak of World War one so in the same way that you know when we look at Star Wars in the same way that war is important there to the rise of the Empire in the same way that the Clone Wars provides this kind of fertile soil to ultimately give rise to the Galactic Empire World War one was essential to the rise of fascism in a couple different ways so for one, you, One of the things that you see after World War I ends is that in several nations, there is a great deal of nationalist anger at the post-war settlement. So at the peace treaty that the victorious Allied powers hammer out at Versailles. So when you look in Germany, for example, the post-war peace has... A lot of provisions in it that are detrimental to Germany so Germany in the Versailles Treaty loses a bunch of territory both within the actual German state and also abroad so Germany loses all of its colonial possessions such as they were many of them but they do lose them the German state is required to pay reparations to allied powers there are limits placed on how big the German army can be to prevent them from being a viable military force And naturally, a lot of nationalists within Germany are very upset by a lot of these provisions. And one of the things that you see among a lot of German ultra-nationalists, so among a lot of the folks who are going to become fascists and then become part of, later on, as we see the Nazi movement, is you see this emergence of what is known as the -the stab-in-the-back myth, which is a lovely word in German, it is Dolchstoßlegende. And what the -the stab-in-the-back myth alleged was that germany did not lose the war militarily but that instead the german military was betrayed by the civilian government so a lot of german nationalists after world war 1 believe that had the fighting continued germany would have eventually won but that it was the civilian leaders back home who went out and sued for peace and then Betrayed the German military and then contributed to German loss in World War One and by extension to these humiliating peace provisions. And then, particularly once you see, once you get you know, the emergence of Nazism, you you get kind of added elements of the stab in the back myth. So it is not just the the civilians back in the home government that were responsible for it, but this was also part of a cabal orchestrated by communists and by Jews to weaken the German nation and to bring about shame and defeat. So you have that, which is of course, you know, it is historically wrong that German military at the end of World War One was soundly defeated. This is this is totally just made up. There's no truth to it at all. So, you know, when you look at Germany, there's a lot of anger among German nationalists about how the victory impacts the German state and the concessions that Germany has to make to the allied powers. When you go to Italy, Italy is an interesting situation. So when World War One breaks out, Italy actually starts on the side of the central power. So they are originally allied with Germany and Austria and the Ottoman Empire. Partway through the war, they switch and they join the allied power. So they join Britain France and, and the United States. And When they make the switch, they are promised various territorial concessions by the Allied Powers. There were particular territories that the Italian state was eyeing that they wanted to incorporate, particularly along the Adriatic. So the Adriatic is the is the sea that kind of separates Italy from southeastern Europe, from the Balkans. And they were looking at a lot of those territories in the Balkans right along the coast of the Adriatic that they wanted to incorporate into Italy. And they were promised by the Allies that if they switched sides, and when the Allies won, they would get some of that territory. Fast forward and you can get to Versailles, Italy gets some of those territories, but not everything that they were promised. So whereas among German nationalists there is this cry of stab in the back. In Italy, among the Italian nationalists, you get calls of what is known as a mutilated victory. So the Germans are upset that they lost. The Italians are upset that they did not win hard enough. That is pretty much how you can summarize it. And so, yeah, so that's one of the factors that leads to the rise of fascism after World War I, is that you have nationalists, particularly in Italy and Germany, who are upset by the terms of the post-war peace. So that is a crucial element. Another key factor leading to the rise of fascism after World War I is post-war upheavals. So Europe, even after the end of World War One, and the signing of the Versailles Peace Treaty, is a very unstable place. It is a place very much in flux. So you have the collapse of a lot of states that have existed for centuries. So the Austrian Empire is broken up and it's turned into a bunch of different smaller states. You have the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the east. In Germany, you have the the ousting of the monarchy and the introduction of a republic. You have the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and so you have the rise of this new form of government. You've got the world's first communist state. You have all of these revolutions that spring up all throughout Europe. So you have communist revolutions in different Eastern European states, and you have these brief communist regimes that pop up in a couple of different of these new post-World War I states. You have even, you know, even within the borders of Germany and Italy, you've got different socialist and communist parties and groups that are agitating that are trying to overthrow the government and come in power. So it's a very unstable place Europe is at the after World War One and then going into the early 1920s. There's a lot of change and there's a lot of even with the end of fighting between the countries, there's a lot of violence that is happening. There's a lot of paramilitary violence. There's a lot of fighting in the street between a lot of different extremist groups. And so all of that instability and all of that upheaval and change does lead within some a desire for and a craving for order and stability and security, particularly if you couple that, the post-war upheaval, with the fact that Europe for four years was at war in which millions of people died. You have a line of people coming out of World War I looking at a lot of this change, looking at the weakness of a lot of these post-World War I governments and their difficulty in terms of maintaining security, in terms of having a functioning economy, in terms of providing jobs. And you have people who are craving order and strength and stability. And fascist regimes in the like coming power promise exactly that. They promise a strong state that is going to, that is going to, to bring order. So you've got that element, too. And then the third key factor that leads to the rise or that contributes to the rise of fascism after World War I is the experience of World War I itself. That World War I is this, I mean, th- this sounds almost like I'm, th- th- this almost sounds like I'm minimizing it. Like World War I is this really transformative moment in a lot of different ways. So for one, one of the things that we see emerge in World War One is this notion of what is called total war, And the idea in total war is that you have not just a military that is out on the front fighting, but you also have the mobilization of the home front for the war effort. So you have civilians who, let's say, are not able to go out and fight. They are working for the war effort. So let's say they might be in factories making material that then goes out to the home front. Or you might have people planting fruits and vegetables in their gardens that is then you know donated and goes to feed the soldiers on the front and things like that you or you have the mobilization of civilians through propaganda which is something that happens you have you know, drives and various fundraisers in order to have people buy war bonds to actually finance the war effort you have people you know in the US You have an entire government office that is open that puts out various sorts of anti-German propaganda and has films that people can go and watch to try and gin up support for the war effort. And so that mobilization of the home front, the idea that everybody gets involved in some way. It's not just the soldiers on the front who are part of the war effort, but it is wives and mothers and it is kids and it is the elderly. Everybody's playing some sort of role in the war effort. This contributes to starting to blur the lines between civilians and the military. Whereas before it was all the, the soldiers are out on the front, they're fighting, and then we're here at home. Now it's like, no, everybody is part of the war effort. In one way or another, even if you're not out there firing a gun, you're still contributing to the war effort. And of course, connected to that, Part of that total war hazard is you have a state that becomes more involved because now you have a state that is going out there and saying, okay, these factories over here, they need to start making... Ships. They need to start making guns and bullets and materi- other sorts of material and ar- artillery. Or you've got to say that's going, going out and say, okay, we're going to make these propaganda movies, these anti-German movies that people are now going to go watch in movie theaters. Or we're going to make these posters or we're going to organize these war bond drives and such. So you have this state that is becoming more involved. So you can see if you go back to what we were talking about with our definition of fascism, when we were talking about totalitarianism and we we're talking about militarism. And then we go back to total war in World War I, you can see the milder form of what the fascists are going to do. The fascists are looking at what's happening with total war. They're looking at this blurring of the line between civilians and the military. They're looking at this increased role that the state is taking in the economy, in the society, in family life. And they're saying, okay, but what if we just kept, what if we push that further? What if we intensified that? And so if you take what's happening there in World War and you just crank it up a couple more degrees, you eventually get to fascism. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so all of that is kind of laying the roots and the inspiration for what fascists are going to aspire towards. And then the other important element of how the war experience informs the rise of fascism is that a lot of soldiers walk away from the war having found a degree of meaning and purpose and camaraderie and even thrill in the fighting. Uh, So I'm going to quote here one of the most famous memoirs that comes out of World War I is one written by a German soldier, a guy by the name of Ernst Jünger. That's called Storm of Steel. And he talks about this in his memoir a little bit, so I'm going to quote here a bit. Quote, The nation was no longer for me an empty thought veiled in symbols. And how could it have been otherwise when I had seen so many die for its sake and been schooled myself to stake my life for its credit every minute, day and night without a thought? And so strange as it may sound, I learned from this very four years schooling in force and all the fantastic extravagance of material warfare that life has no depth of meaning except when it is pledged for an ideal and that there are ideals in comparison with which the life of an individual and even of a people has no weight. So Junge there is describing what a lot of World War I veterans feel, which is that in going out there and fighting, and being out in the trenches, they won, they had this kind of unity and connection with their fellow soldiers because they were all in the trenches fighting together, fighting for one another, fighting for their lives, and then also this connection to the nation. Because this was the notion of you know, if you're a German soldier, you were fighting for Germany. If you were a British soldier, you were fighting for Britain, if you were a French soldier, you were fighting for for france and for the french people so there was this kind of connection to this higher ideal something bigger than yourself this kind of national entity that before maybe people didn't really think that much about or see much value reality and now all of a sudden when you were out there in the trenches for four years fighting and dying for the german state now that becomes real to you because of all those sacrifices and so by comparison once they come back home and they're out of the trenches and there's peace. There's this feeling of detachment, the sense of what is the purpose of my life now that the war gives so much meaning and value to what I was doing. And now it's like, now I'm now peace has returned and I'm trying to find a job or I'm trying to raise a family, but like what higher purpose is my life serving? And so both of those sentiments, both the feeling of unity and camaraderie and purpose that comes out of the experience of fighting, and then this feeling of dislocation and loss in the poster period is going to be really important to the rise of fascism. A lot of the early fascists that emerge, you know, at the very end of World War One and then going into the 1920s, a lot of them are veterans of World War One, people who had this kind of transformative experience in the trenches and then were like, we want to continue this. So again, going back to this idea of the fascist emphasis on militarism and the glorification of violence, it comes out of this World War One experience. It comes from the experience of people like Ernst Jünger who were out in the trenches and were like, wow, this was transformative. I feel like this elevated me. I feel like this connected me to my fellow man. And so fascism takes that sentiment and then turns it into this ideology of saying, well, what if we had a society that was on a kind of permanent war footing at all times? We could then achieve this kind of unity and singularity of purpose that we had during the war, but we could have it all the time. But one of these factors prior to World War One and the experience of going through World War I are really, really central to the rise of fascism in the 1920s and 1930s. So fascism both as a movement and then actually as a governing entity, first take hold in post-war Italy. So that's where our story is going to start. Of course, we cannot talk about fascism in Italy without talking about Benito Mussolini. So Mussolini, prior to World War I, was actually a man of the left. He was a journalist for a socialist newspaper. When World War I broke out... Many Italian socialists, as was the case with socialists in a lot of Western Europe and in the U.S., opposed the war on ideological grounds, but Mussolini himself personally supported it as a nationalist. And so this leads him to have a kind of ideological break with the socialists and kind of walks away from that movement. And then when you get to the post-war period, his politics shift significantly towards the right, and then ultimately into the, you know, into the extremists and into, into fascism. In 1919, he helps form the first fascist party in Italy. It's called the Fasci di Combattimento. And closely linked to this fascist party was a group that was known as the Squadrismo also known as the Black Shirts. And these were essentially fascist street gangs that went around and beat people up. So they, they engaged in extrajudicial vigilante violence against perceived enemies of the fascists, in particular communists. And so what we started to see in Italy in, this, in the first couple of years after World War I essentially from about 1919 to about 1922 is there's a great deal of fascist violence in Northern Italy, particularly in the rural areas of of Northern Italy, where you have these squadrons going around and they are fighting communists. They are fighting other groups and they are attempting to gain control and also to try and institute order and stability and over those years, support for fascism starts to grow as the fascists make their presence more and more felt at the local level. And so that by about 1922, there's estimated estimate there are about a quarter million fascists in Italy. Even so, despite the fact that fascists are starting to build this kind of local support, they still remain rather electorally weak. So in 1921, Italy has elections to the parliament and the fascist party, Mussolini's fascist party only wins about 35 seats in parliament. So despite the fact that there is this kind of grassroots growth in support for fascism in terms of translating that into actual political power in terms of power at the ballot box, it's still pretty weak. So in part because the fascists themselves don't particularly care much about democracy Mussolini and the fascists opt for power by a different route. So in October of 1922, the fascists in Italy stage the March on Rome. So Mussolini, along with about 25,000 black shirts of so the squadrismo, they enter Rome with the goal of seizing power with their objective was to forcefully overthrow the Italian government and to install themselves in power. The political establishment of Italy sees this and is quite spooked. And in response to the fascist march, the king of Italy, because Italy at this time is a monarchy, a guy by the name of Victor Emmanuel, decides to cave to the fascist demands and installs Mussolini as prime minister. And there's a couple of factors that lead... Italy's political class and the the king in particular to decide to ultimately fold in the face of this fascist threat. So one of them is that there is this fear of a fascist revolution, this idea that if they do not concede to Mussolini and put him in power, then the fascists are going to organize a violent revolution and then potentially violently overthrow the king and the political class themselves if if this concession is not made additionally the other factor is that although a lot of italians particularly a lot of italian conservatives so a lot of italians on the right don't particularly like the fascists that aren't particularly enamored by them they saw them as the better alternative to the left because it was seen as that the choice was well either we can go with the fascists and kind of ally ourselves with them. Or we can make an enemy of the fascists, war fighting, and then there's a chance that the Italian communists might come into the void and they might take power. So that as much as they might not have liked the fascists, they dislike the left even more. And so there was a thought of, well, this is the better of two fairly bad options. And so that is why... The king, and that is why a lot of Italian conservatives decided to throw their weight on in with the fascists. And this is a pattern that you see happen on other countries. This is something that you will see in that is key in Germany and the rise of the Nazis. That you have a lot of folks in power already who make this kind of utilitarian calculation and think that, okay, yeah, these guys are bad. These fascists are bad. These Nazis aren't great, but they're you know we don't like the. We don't like the communists. We don't like the socialists. So these guys are a little bit better. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll side with them, and it'll be fine. And of course, it's never fine. So after the march on Rome, that is a success. Mussolini is in power, and he starts to build up a fascist state. Mussolini's rise to power provides this inspiration for fascists elsewhere throughout Europe, and it is a particular source of inspiration for a certain german by the name of adolf hitler so hitler was one of these classic world war one veterans who was just kind of floating out there i talked about when i was talking about the war experience about how a lot of veterans after world war one felt this kind of loss and lack of Purpose and attachment. Hitler was the kind of classic profile of this where he was fighting in the war and he felt this great deal of meaning and purpose in his life. And then the war ends and he goes back home and he's just kind of bouncing around and doesn't really know what to do with himself. At the time that Mussolini takes power in Italy, Hitler is the head of a fairly small, radical, far right party. That is called the National Socialist German Workers' Party. And it is one of a number of different fascist groups and paramilitary gangs... That has emerged kind of in the aftermath of World War I that is engaged in different sorts of street violence and such. So the Nazis are around in the early 20s. They are not the main group. They are not the most powerful. They are one in a kind of constellation of a bunch of these different fascist-ish groups that exist in Germany. In November of 1923... Inspired by the example of Mussolini, Hitler decides that he wants to stage his own kind of march on Rome in Germany, and so he ha- you have the launching of the Beer Hall Putsch, and so this was Hitler's attempt to overthrow the republic, the Republican government of Germany, the Weimar Republic, through a violent revolution, a la Mussolini, that he launches in Munich, which is in southern Germany. Unlike Mussolini, it fails and Hitler is jailed. And so while Hitler is in prison, two important things happen there. One is he writes Mein Kampf, which is his kind of both kind of part autobiography, part political manifesto. And he also decides that the Mussolini path of the violent overthrow of the government is not the best move for the Nazis, and instead he settles on electoral path to power. So he thinks that the best way for the Nazis to gain control of the German state is through elections. Now, when we look at Germany's situation at this time in the 1920s, the Weimar Republic, in particular, largely because of the fact that it is ultimately overthrown and the Nazis come into power, it has this kind of historical reputation of being very weak and ineffectual and prone to crises. The actual story is a little more nuanced. So in the early years after World War One, Germany does have a lot of trouble. So the German economy is plagued by hyperinflation. You have some issues relating to the, the post-war peace. So you have the Allies occupy this region of Western Germany that is known as the Rhineland. So you have these crises, these, both these economic and political crises that happen early on in the Weimar Republic. By about 1924, though, the situation largely stabilizes both politically and economically, and then for the rest of the 1920s, Germany is actually on pretty solid footing. The economy is growing. There is relative peace and prosperity. So the Weimar Republic, after, again, about 1924, is able to actually govern effectively. What brings that all to an end, though, is the stock market crash in 1929 and the onset of the Great Depression. That really brings an end to the good times it delegitimizes the Weimar government and it emboldens radical movements oh, like the Nazis. So you start seeing the Nazis and then also other extreme groups like the German communists. They start to gain support as the depression sets in and as the government is unable to provide the basic resources that people need and you have unemployment rising and so on and so forth. And so... The Nazis take advantage of this naturally in order to shore up their own power base. And the Nazis gain through supporters through a combination of different tactics. So there are, of course, direct appeals to people. There are, you know, the Nazis are pledging, for instance, to reverse the post war settlement and to repudiate the Treaty of Versailles. And they're promising to bring back economic growth and jobs and so on. So you have that and then you also have political violence that the Nazis are engaging in against their perceived enemies. So while you have the Nazis as a political party functioning, you also have this paramilitary wing of the Nazis and that is the SA, the the, the Sturmabteilung or the the brown shirts who are going around and again, you know, duking it out with communists with other perceived enemies of the nazis so through this two-pronged strategy they are starting to gain power and they're starting to gain support among ordinary germans in 1932 hitler runs for president of germany but he loses however the nazis are able to make significant gains in the parliamentary elections and so After the election of 1932 happened, the Nazis hold 37% of the seats in parliament, which is not a majority. The, The Nazis never actually get to an electoral majority, but it does make them the largest numerical party in the German parliament. So they don't hold 50 plus one, but they are bigger than any other party. And so because they are the largest party by number within parliament, Hitler is made chancellor of Germany in January of 1933 because that was how that was traditionally how the German parliament operated whichever party had the most seats in parliament the leader of that party was made chancellor once again as with the situation in Italy in the march on Rome the German political establishment and a lot of German conservatives they weren't particularly fond of Hitler they didn't like the Nazis they particularly didn't like a lot of this you know a lot of the street violence with the SA and what they're doing, but they saw the Nazis as their best option. They thought of them as preferable to the communists. They believed that they could control and rein Hitler in. And just as happens in the case of Italy, they're wrong in Germany. So Hitler is made chancellor of Germany in January 1933. The following month in February, There is the Reichstag fire. So the building for the German parliament, the Reichstag, is set on fire. The Nazis blame this on a attack against the government by communists. The actual story is more complicated. The parliament building is in fact set on fire by a communist, a Dutch guy. He may or may not have been inebriated when he did it. It is not particularly clear that it was a deliberate act in terms of some sort of political statement, but the Nazis use it that way, and they interpret it that way, and they kind of manufacture this crisis. Again, if you think about You go back to Star Wars, like you go back to something like Revenge of the Sith, where Palpatine uses this Jedi rebellion as a kind of pretext. You have the Nazis doing something very similar here, where they use this burning down of the Reichstag as this pretext for For consolidating power. So in the aftermath of that, you have the parliament passing what's known as the Reichstag Fire Decree. And that curtailed most civil liberties in Germany. So it suspended, for instance, freedom of the press, of assembly, freedom of expression. And then in the following month in March, you get the passage of the Enabling Act. And this is what kind of creates the foundation of the Nazi dictatorship. So this gives Hitler dictatorial powers. It allows him to make laws without parliament. So without going through the parliament to essentially make law by decree. And in fact, allows him to make laws that directly violate the German constitution. So by that point, by the time you get to March of '33 the Nazis have used these crises and this kind of imagined attack on the German government by the burning of the Reichstag in order to lay the foundations for their totalitarian government. So by the time we get to the early 1930s, you now have these two fascist regimes that have emerged in power. You've got Mussolini in Italy and you've got Hitler in Germany. When we look at how they actually govern in practice, one of the things that we see and this is particularly true in the case of Italy so, as I'll talk about is that fascist leaders aspired to implement totalitarianism. That was the goal. So I talked about early on when I was talking about the five pillars of fascism, they aspired to create this state that would have this kind of total control over all individuals, and all facets of society, but they never fully achieved it in practice. So if you look, for instance, in Italy, Mussolini is made prime minister after the March on Rome in 1922. It takes him a couple years, but by 1925, he has established a dictatorship in Italy. He has made all of the moves necessary in order to consolidate power in the hands of the fascist government. However, The king still remains in power. Victor Emmanuel is still sitting on the throne. The monarchy has not been abolished. So even though he has this dictatorship, Mussolini does not rule absolutely. He's still got the king above him, and that's going to become really important when we get to talking about World War II, so put a pin in that idea. Mussolini is a dictator, but he's not an absolute dictator, and he's not ruling Italy all by himself. He still has got the king that he has to nominally answer to. And what you start to see within fascist Italy is that even though the fascists and you got Mussolini talking about having a state that is the kind of central locus of power and that is guiding and directing all the other elements of society, what really starts to emerge in fascist Italy is that there are in fact actually several different sites of power. There are several different groups and entities that are jockeying and have different sorts of power and influence in the government so you've got on the one hand you've got the parties you've got the fascist party you've got big business you've got the government itself as a kind of distinct entity from the political party from the fascist party you've got the catholic church and you've also got fascist labor unions so you've got labor unions that were organized by the fascist party and run by fascists that are existing there as a kind of own semi-autonomous entity. And so you've got all of these different groups, and they all have slightly different competing interests, and they're all kind of jockeying for power. And this manifests in a bunch of different ways. So one of the things that you see early on in the fascist regime is that there is a tension between conservatives on the one hand in Italy and a lot of fascists on the other. So... You know, once Mussolini is installed in power after the March on Rome, conservatives were really interested first and foremost in stability. They didn't really, they weren't particularly committed to the fascist worldview or Mussolini's vision for the ideal society. They just thought, okay, we'll put him in power and he can kind of bring stability and order back. And he can kind of bring an end to a lot of this street violence and all that. A lot of fascists, on the other hand, were looking to organized what they called a second revolution so that once mussolini was in power that they saw that as the kind of first step in a more radical transformation of the italian state and society so you have this kind of tension there where a lot of the people in the political establishment a lot of conservatives are saying okay like mussolini is in power but he'll just He'll just put a lid on things and kind of keep things as they are. Versus you've got a lot of these fascists saying, like, no, 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 we need we need more change, or we need more revolution, we need more things to be overthrown. So you've got that kind of tension that's happening there. And you know, Mussolini ends up in practice kind of caving a little bit to the conservative end. So his regime, once he's in power. He ends up curbing a lot of the local fascist violence, you know that I talked about in the early years. You had a lot of, you know, these the squadries, and all these black shirts going around and beating people up. Once the fascists are in power, Mussolini kind of starts putting a lid on that in the interest of trying to maintain order and stability. Another good example of some of this tension in the way that there's these different kind of sites of power was with this organization of or this entity that existed within the fascist Italy that was known as the Dopa Lavoro. And so what the Lavoro was, was a state-sponsored leisure and recreational organization. So think of it essentially as like a fascist YMCA that provided, the, it was, it was sort of centered for adults and it provided adults different things that they could do, like sports and swimming and camping and things like that. The Dopolavor was created in 1925, and it was initially created as an independent body by the fascist party as a kind of concession to fascist labor unions who were competing against socialists. So you had socialists in Italy who were doing a lot of the same stuff. They were organizing different leisure and recreational activity. And you have these fascist labor unions that are saying, Hey, we want to get in on that. Can you create us an entity that will do that? And then you get the emergence of the Dopolavoro. Two years later though, in 1927, the of which was this nominally was this independent body that you know ran itself, gets taken over by the state, by the government, as a move against the fascist labor unions. Because there was this feeling that, okay, well, maybe maybe these fascist labor unions are getting too powerful and are getting too big for the britches. So the state is kind of asserting its own dominance, its its own prominence by taking over this leisure and recreational group and then running it directly itself. So you've got all of these different sites of power who are all kind of contesting and are all trying to win favor and influence. And another example, a concrete of that case comes actually with the Catholic church. So in 1929, the fascist government, Mussolini signs a treaty with the Vatican that is known as the Lateran treaty. And this settles What had been up to this point a decades-long diplomatic and geopolitical tension between the Italian government and the papacy. So I'm going to go a little bit back to this. So I talked about earlier on about how Italy was unified in the 1860s and that how prior to the 1860s there was no single Italian state and instead there were these smaller states all along the peninsula. One of these states was this entity that was known as the Papal States. And it comprised territories that were under the direct rule of the Roman Catholic Church and of the Pope. And at the time, this entity was much larger than what we now think of as the Vatican. It re- the Papal States kind of encompassed all of all, a huge chunk of central Italy, of the kind of middle of the peninsula. As part of the wars of unification, the papal states are taken away from the Roman Catholic Church. That territory is decreased. And the territorial control of the papacy is shrunk down essentially to Vatican City. And the pope is kind of this prisoner of the Vatican and is locked in, surrounded by this new Italian government. And as a result of the loss of the papal states, the Vatican refused to recognize the legitimacy of the new Italian state. So it had been this standoff, this political standoff, since the 1860s that finally gets resolved in 1929 with the signing of the Lateran Treaty. And what this treaty does, it on the one hand, it recognizes papal sovereignty of the Vatican. So it says, okay, Pope, you rule the Vatican as your own little city-state, which is what it has been ever since. The Vatican recognizes the Italian state, the Italian government as legitimate, which had been refusing to do up to that point. And in addition, Mussolini and the Italian government make various sorts of concessions to the Catholic Church. So for instance, because Catholicism is made the official state religion of Italy, Catholicism is brought into the schools, so you have religious instruction happening in in schools in a way that it had not been happening but prior to that. And the church is given a degree of independence in managing its own affairs. So, for instance, the treaty gave the Catholic Church the authority to appoint its own bishops, even though under the terms of the treaty, the church still had to get state approval for those. It gave the church authority to oversee annulments, so disillusions of marriage and so on. So this treaty kind of carves out this little semi-autonomous sphere for the Catholic Church, where again, think back to totalitarianism. The aspiration of fascism is the state controls everything and guides everything and everything is serving the interests of the state. In practice, what the fascist regime in Italy is doing is it's going to the Catholic Church and saying, hey, we're going to give you this little carve-out over here, and you're going to have this kind of little bit of semi-independence. And so as a consequence, when the treaty gets signed, it pleases a lot of Italian conservatives, but it angers a lot of fascists. The conservatives like it because they see it as upholding tradition and the historical role of the Catholic Church and ending this dispute. But a lot of fascists are mad because, again, it's, it's handing out these concessions to the Church. It's seemingly weakening the grip of the Italian state. So Italy is a good example of this this kind of gap between the rhetoric and the aspirations towards totalitarianism, and then what fascist rule looks like, which is there's a lot of jockeying and a lot of concessions and a lot of different interest groups who are asserting power in all these different ways and concessions have to be made and so on. When we go back to Germany, we see something similar happen very early on after Hitler Takes power and establishes dictatorship, which is that an early problem emerges with the SA, so with the brown shirts. So the SA becomes this foreign and the side of the new Nazi government. Even though it had been key to its rise to power, it starts to be seen as an issue for a couple of reasons. First off, many in the SA, including its leader, Gabon Ernst Röhm, wanted to continue the quote-unquote revolution even after Hitler took power. So much like a lot of fascists in Italy were doing, after the seizure of power, you had a lot of people in the SA calling for a second revolution. And in particular, there were a lot of people in the SA who were drawn to socialistic ideas. And so when they were thinking of a second revolution, they were thinking in particular about a revolution against big business and having the state take control of big business and of the economy to a greater extent than it had before. So you've got the essay there wanting to continue this revolution and seeing Hitler's installation in power as being just the first step in this larger, more revolutionary transformation of society. That spooks a lot of people. The other thing that spooks a lot of people about the SA is that the SA wanted to replace the regular German army as the state's official armed forces. Because the SA at the time is, at the time is a paramilitary group. It's this wing of the Nazi party. But what the SA wanted to do was actually overthrow, to get rid of the official state army of Germany, the military. ...and to make themselves the official armed forces of the German state. So to no longer be this paramilitary body. And so for all these reasons, the SA was the source of worry. The SA worried the army, because the army did not want to get overthrown. A lot of big business leaders, a lot of German conservatives are worried. Particularly a lot of this talk about a second revolution and state control of the economy. like That worries a lot of people. And so Hitler, in an attempt to placate these concerns and to shore up his own stability and his own power, orchestrates what comes to be known as the Night of the Long Knives. And this takes place in June and July of 1934. And what this was, was a purge of the SA to appease their opponents or to appease people within the... German political establishment to appease big business, to appease the army, and to strengthen Hitler's hold on power. So you see a lot of SA leaders, including Ernst Röhm, they are taken out, they are executed, the ranks of the SA shrink, they are effectively, for all intents and purposes, neutered as a kind of political entity, and Hitler is able to strengthen his own hold on power and to placate these other interests within the German government, who were getting worried about some of the more radical, some of the more revolutionary factions within the Nazi party. So, you know, I talked about in the context of Italy, uh, how you have all of these different sites of power that emerge, and they're all kind of jockeying within them. Compared to Italy, Germany is more successful in terms of consolidating power. The Nazis really are able to get closer than the Italians do to creating a totalitarian state. Over the course of the 1930s, almost all independent civil society groups, so recreation groups, churches, etc., etc., pretty much all of them are either eliminated or they are incorporated into the state. You get some Nazi version. They are Nazified in one way or another. So So the Nazi party is quite successful at establishing this kind of centralized state control over and state presence in all facets of society as part of this totalitarian aspiration. Now, to stick more on Nazi Germany to talk about some of the kind of Nazi ideological goals, what is the Nazi government attempting to do? So the main goal of the regime was the creation of what was called the Volksgemeinschaft, which translates roughly into people's community. And what the people's community was, it was this vision of the German nation as a community of racially pure Germans. So this is where we get the race element really coming through and the ways that Nazism kind of distinguishes itself as an ideology from their fascist counterparts in Italy. We're going to talk a little bit more about like the role of race in Italy in a little bit. And how that factors in, but from the beginning, there is this priority and this emphasis on creating a racially pure nation, and to bring together all German people in this Volksgemeinschaft, and this also has a, there is a kind of foreign policy element to this, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. The main threat, the central threat to the Nazi Volksgemeinschaft, as the regime saw it, Was German Jews. And so after taking power, the Nazis move quickly to marginalize Germany's Jewish population. So in April of 1933, so pretty much right after the Enabling Act gets passed and Hitler is made, for all intents and purposes, dictator of Germany, you get the passage of the law for the restoration of the professional civil service. And this law bans Jews from most civil service and professional jobs. So it bans Jews from getting government jobs. It bans them from becoming doctors and lawyers, teachers, and so on. So you immediately have the Nazi government passing this law that tries to limit what jobs Jews can take in Germany. A few years after that, in September of 1935, you get the passage of the Nuremberg Laws. And these are a series of laws The once again, further aim to marginalize the Jewish population. So German Jews are stripped of citizenship. So German citizenship is now strictly limited to Aryan peoples. And you also have the banning of marriage and sexual relations between Jews and Aryans. So you have this institution of racial citizenship. So only people who belong to this particular racial group are able to be citizens of the German state. And those who are on the outside, particularly Jews, are no longer citizens. They are now in this kind of legal underclass category, and they are also banned from marriage. They're banned from marrying outside of their race, for all intents and purposes. And then in November of 1938, so you have this kind of legal regime that gets set up over the years in the aftermath of the Nazis taking power, where Jews are gradually stripped of their rights and they are made into second class citizens. Then November 1938, you get a significant escalation of state anti-Semitism that happens in the form of Kristallnacht, so the Night of the Broken Glass, where you have attacks on Jewish-owned businesses all throughout Germany that is kind of encouraged and egged on by the Nazi party. So you have this kind of escalation in terms of attacks on the Jewish population first coming from the legal end in terms of removing their rights and their liberties, and then also from this angle of extra-legal violence. All the while, of course, you know, know, anti-Semitic policy is, of course, the kind of main focus of the regime, but you also have other, quote-unquote, non-desirable populations also being targeted. So, for example, in July of 1933, you have the passage of the Law for the Prevention of Hereditarily Diseased Progeny, And what this does is it legalizes forced sterilization. And yeah, so anyone deemed unfit could be sterilized against their will in order to prevent them from birthing other unfit people and continuing their propagation. So you have targets not just on Jews, but then also on these other populations, all kind of influenced by this social Darwinist thinking of this idea of we want to ensure that... The fittest people, the racially purest people, are able to, you know, continue and reproduce and grow a number, and then all of these quote unquote undesirables, we want to shrink and limit their growth and their propagation, and so on and so forth. So that element coming through in terms of state policy. So you have this within Germany, you have this 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 aspiration to create this Volksgemeinschaft, this this people's community that would be racially homogeneous and that would be free of these undesirable populations, closely linked to this idea of Volksgemeinschaft was the idea of Lebensraum, which translates to living space. And so what the goal of Lebensraum was, it involved the acquisition of territory in Eastern Europe in order to gain living space for the German people. Because under Nazi ideology, it was believed that the present territorial borders of Germany were insufficient for the German nation. It was too small. And so Germany needed to expand eastward in order to get more land and to get more resources in order to have this people's community, this racial community of Germans, grow and prosper and thrive. And also linked to this was the desire to incorporate into the German state Germans who are living abroad. So one of the things that you see, this is one of the consequences of the post-World War I peace, is that boundaries of a lot of these new post-war governments do not align with national identity. So one of the things that results is that even though you have the creation, for instance, of a Polish state or a Czech state or a Hungarian state, these are not all homogeneous states. It's not the case that everyone who is living within the borders of Hungary is Hungarian, or that everyone living within the borders of Poland is a Pole. In fact, funnily enough, post-war Poland was only 70% ethnically Polish. The other 30% was not Polish. And so one of the things that happens after World War I is that you have these pockets of ethnic Germans who are living as minority groups in places like Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in as far east as Ukraine. And so there was this aspiration by the Nazis of saying, well, we're gonna expand territorially so that we can bring in these German people so that they can be part of the German nation, because they're out there. And so we want to get the territory, and then they can be part of the actual German state and German nation. And so these, these two aspects of the kind of goals of the Nazi regime of Volksgemeinschaft and, and Lebensraum is summarized by this phrase that the Nazis coined, as Blut und Boden. So that means blood and soil. So you've got, so the goal of blood on the one hand, which is the creation of the Volksgemeinschaft, this, this community of racially pure Germans, the, the marginalization of those who do not meet the criteria, and then Boden, soil. So the, ac- the acquisition of territory of land for this German nation. And these two ideas are closely linked to one another, that central to creating the Volksgemeinschaft is the acquisition of Lebensraum, of living space. And that becomes, in the years after Hitler takes power, that becomes a key part of Nazi foreign policy. So in March 1938, you have the Anschluss, and so that is the unification of austria with Germany, so the Nazis just sweep in with their military and take in Austria and make it part of the German state because the Austrians were were Germans. They were German speaking. Hitler, Hitler himself was Austrian. In September of 1938, so a couple months after the Anschluss, you have the Germans invade Czechoslovakia because there was on the western border of Czechoslovakia, so basically right where what is now the Czech Republic borders Germany, there was a population of ethnic Germans living in a region that was known as the Sudetenlands. So these are the Sudeten Germans. And it's this kind of like ring right around the border between Czechoslovakia and Germany. And so Hitler invades Czechoslovakia with the pretense of seizing this territory and bringing these Sudeten Germans, these Germans who are living in Czechoslovakia, into the German nation. And then a year after that, in September of 1939, you have the German invasion of Poland, again, as part of this goal of Lebensraum, of acquiring living space and territory for the German nation and incorporating German peoples who are living abroad, and particularly German people who are living in Poland. So race thinking and race ideology was really, really central to the policies of Nazi Germany, both domestically in terms of laws that they pass against, say, the Jewish population, against other non-desirable populations, and was also key to German foreign policy in terms of German expansion abroad and the acquisition of Lebensraum. As I've handed back earlier, both early in the episode and then a few minutes ago, when you're talking about race in fascist Italy, it's a little more complicated in terms of how it exactly factored into Italian fascist ideology. So I quoted earlier towards the episode, I quoted Mussolini from the Doctrine of Fascism when he was talking about defining what a nation is. And race initially did not play a particularly significant role in defining Italian national identity for the fascists. So when they understood who was an Italian, what constituted Italian national identity, that leaned much more, again, in the early years on history and culture and shared values than it did on membership in a particular racial group. It was not like the Nazis were. The Nazis from the jump were like, you have to meet this kind of racial criteria of being an Aryan in order to be a true German and a member of the German state and nation. Italy's a little more fluid than that. One good example of that is to look actually at Italian Jews in fascist Italy. For the first few years, for the first maybe let's say about 15 years or so of fascist Italy, Jews in Italy were for the most part unmolested. They were not really targeted for discrimination or segregation or marginalization of the way that they are in Nazi Germany. And in fact, many Italian Jews were supportive of the fascist regime. So it was not seen again in those early years, if you go from you know through the 1920s into the up to like let's say the mid-1930s, it was not a kind of contradiction to be both Jewish and a fascist in Italy. Those are seen as compatible because again, the the notions that the fascists in Italy had about national identity weren't as race-centered as they were in Nazi Germany. As we get to the late 30s, though, you start to have a shift. And that shift happens for a couple of reasons. An important part of that is the growing influence of Nazi Germany. So when Hitler first takes power in the early 1930s, he's very much a kind of junior partner to Mussolini because Mussolini had already been empowered and had his own dictatorship. As you get over the course of the 1930s and the Nazi state becomes stronger and you start having, you know, particularly the German economy starts growing and the Nazis are pursuing this policy of rearmament and building up the military, Germany starts growing stronger and Italy starts becoming the junior partner. And one of the consequences of that is that Germany starts exercising greater influence in terms of how the Italians kind of govern themselves. And so in 1938, in part because of this growing German influence, Italy adopts anti-Semitic race laws along the lines that exist at that time in Germany. So that's one of the factors, is the rising influence of Nazi Germany starts to have Italy mirror their own policies. And so particularly after 1938, Italian Jews do start to occupy a more second class citizen status akin to Jews in Germany, whereas before they had been kind of just left alone. The other reason that you start to see a shift and you start to see race taking a greater role in fascist thinking and in terms of how the fascists are understanding national identity is that the Italians start pursuing their own project of living space. So the Italian fascists have their own version of labor realm. They call it Spazio Vitale, which is Italian for living space. And so what the fascists try to do is they wanted to create an Italian colonial empire that would stretch into the Balkans. So into Eastern Europe, into North Africa and into the Middle East that would represent a kind of new Rome. This was a big kind of aspiration for the fascists in Italy. and kind of gets back to that notion of national rebirth. There, there was a lot of talk and imagery of kind of creating a new Roman empire under fascism. And so once the Italians look to start conquering new territory and, and start acquiring this, this spazio vitale, this empire... You start to see arguments being made about the racial superiority of Italians over these subject populations, particularly Africans, as the Italians go out and they start conquering territory. So as the Nazis are you know, uniting with Austria and going into the Sudetenlands and Czechoslovakia, you have the Italians in 1935 and 36. Mussolini launches an invasion of Ethiopia, to conquer that and bring it into the Italian colonial empire. And then in 1939, uh, Italy launches an invasion of Albania to, again, to, to bring it into this new Rome that the fascists are trying to create Italy. So yeah, race is a little bit more complicated in fascist Italy. At the outset, it doesn't play as much of a role, but then as time passes, as the priorities of the fascist government shift and they start looking abroad to conquering territory, and as the influence of Nazi Germany grows, race thinking starts to become more prominent. So yeah, so 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 we've gotten the story now to 1939, and we've gotten, you know, we just talked about the fascist and the, the Italian invasion of Albania and the Nazi invasion of Poland. The Nazi invasion of Poland is, of course, the the trigger, the catalyst for the outbreak of the Second World War. So now we're going to kind of move into talk about fascism at war and in World War II. So when World War II breaks out, the Germans have two major priorities going into this conflict. First, they want to avoid the outbreak of a two front war. So this has been a problem that had happened in World War One, which is that Germany initially started fighting in the West. They initially started with an invasion of Western Europe. But then before that was done and dealt with, they had also launched fighting in the East. And so you had, had Germany fighting on both ends of the continent. And this kind of stretched men and material and resources. So this was the first priority of Germany. They did not want a two-front war. The goal was, okay, we're going to win in one front. We're going to win. They're going to start in the West. That was the goal. They're going to conquer the West and then going to move east. So in order to be able to focus all of their resources in one theater of war at a time. The second priority of the Nazis going to World War II was to avoid a repeat of trench warfare. So what had happened in the start of World War One, and we can't really get into all the particulars here about why why trench warfare breaks out, but what happened in World War I was there was initially a lot of movement and a lot of fighting and You have the Germans kind of pushing into the West, but then for a bunch of different reasons, the war kind of stalls out and you have, you have soldiers on both sides, both on the German side, on the kind of central powers and also the allies, they start setting up this kind of elaborate system of trenches. And then you get into this fighting that is on the one hand, it's very brutal. You have millions of people losing their lives, but the amount of territory that gets exchanged and and the, the battle lines that move is very, very little. So it's this kind of stalemate that kind of, that happens particularly in the West in World War One. So those are like priorities. So it was, we don't want a two-front war. So we want to fight one theater, complete that, and then move into the other theater. And also, we don't want this stalemate to happen. We don't want to get into this trench warfare where both sides get bogged down. Nobody is gaining or losing territory, but then people are just dying in buckets. To accomplish these ends to get swift victories and to prevent the emergence of these kind of stalemate situations. The Germans pioneer a military tactic that is known as Blitzkrieg or Lightning War. And the, the kind of heart of Blitzkrieg was it was a rapid style of warfare that was characterized by the use of tanks and aircraft in order to achieve swift, decisive victories. And both of these technologies, tanks and aircraft were relatively new. There there were there was aerial fighting in World War One. Tanks kind of came in towards the end of World War One, but they were never really good, and so they never really got used to a great deal. But then, you know, in the kind of two decades after World War One, the technology for both advanced significantly. And so the Nazis wanted to exploit these mechanized weapons as a way to launch quicker attacks and quicker offenses and to gain victories at a a much rapid rate that would prevent stalemate situations where you might have the emergence of trench warfare. And so the Nazis put Blitzkrieg to use in may of 1940 with the invasion of france so the germans sweep into france they kind of they do it through this two-pronged strategy where they first go they launch a force that kind of goes up into the netherlands and then kind of into belgium in that way and they send that in as a kind of dummy force to make the french think they're invading from the north and then the main line of german forces kind of blasts in through central france and so the Germans kind of sweep across the the middle of France and then go in this kind of arc across the the French coast to kind of split the the country in two. And as a result of this rapid style warfare, as a result of the utilization of tanks and aircraft, they are able to achieve swift victory and France, in fact surrenders within six weeks. So whereas, in World War I, you had four years of fighting in this trench warfare style. Because of the implementing of Blitzkrieg, because of these new military technologies and advances, they are able the Germans are able to defeat the French within six weeks, within essentially about a month and a half. After the victory in France, Germany trains its sights on Britain because, again, it's part of this. We only want to fight one front at a time. So there's, this, there's, the, there's the goal of we're going to deal with the West first, and then we're going to shift our attention to the East. So in July 1940, you have the outbreak of the Battle of Britain. So you have the Germans, they launch an air assault on Britain that was going to be seen as the first wave in what would be eventually land invasion of the British Isles. However, the air campaign fails to break the resolve of the British nation. And so as a result, by October of 1940, the Germans are forced to pull back and they abandon their planned land invasion of Great Britain. In October of 1940, so at the same time that they stop the they, they retreat in the Battle of Britain, you have the invasion of the Balkans of Southeastern Europe. So you have both Nazi and Italian forces sweeping into Southeastern Europe and again, using Blitzkrieg and again, achieving rapid victories. So both Yugoslavia and Greece fall under the control of the axis of the, of the Italians and the Germans. And what you start to see As part of this is that as Nazi and fascist forces are kind of sweeping across Europe first in the West and in the East, they start establishing friendly puppet regimes. So we see a little bit of this in Star Wars results. So if you think about, I think, you know, probably the best example that we get is this is in Mandalore, So if we go to, you know, if we go to Rebels, we see how there are the, the Imperial Super Commandos. So you've got the, the Mandalorians that are pro-Empire, and you've got Gar Saxon who gets installed as the kind of puppet ruler of Mandalore on behalf of the Empire. The Nazis and the Fascists do something very similar across Europe, is that as they sweep into these different countries, they install these friendly regimes. So, for example, you have... In France, what happens in France is France kind of gets bisected. So the north half of France comes under direct German control. And then in the south, you have the emergence of what was called Vichy France. So it was this nominally independent state, but that was a kind of client state of Germany. It had an authoritarian government. If you go to the east and Eastern Europe, what you see happening is that as as the Nazis and as the Italians sweep in, they install in power fascist groups and parties that were already on the ground organizing. They kind of get emboldened. They get installed in power. So, for example, in Croatia, you see the Croatian fascist party, the Ustasha. They get put into power. They get control over a kind of fascist puppet state in Croatia. In Slovakia, you have the emergence of a guy by the name of Josef Tizo. He takes power. He's a Fascist in Romania, you have a guy by the name of Ion Antonescu who gets installed in power. So you have these fascist governments that are set up across Eastern and Western Europe that are friendly to Nazi Germany and to fascist Italy, and the kind of rule on their behalf. They're nominally independent, but for all intents and purposes, their fates are tied to the the, the two big fascist regimes. And then in June of 1941. You get the Nazis now having, for all intents and purposes, they've, they've kind of won in the West. France has been defeated. The British have not been defeated, but they're they're an island. They're all right. They, they can just kind of sit up there. They're not, they're not seen as a priority. And then you have a lot of Eastern Europe has already been kind of pacified, particularly the Balkans and such. Now the Nazis train their sights on the Soviet Union. And you get the launching of Operation Barbarossa, which is the invasion of the Soviet Union, and is the largest land invasion of history. It has almost four million soldiers are sent into the Soviet Union in an attempt to conquer the Soviet Union. And if you look at the map of Europe, by this point, by the summer of 1941, most of Europe is under fascist rule. They're either under direct rule of, let's say, Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, or a fascist puppet state. So whether that's in Croatia, Slovakia, Romania, things like that. So pretty much the entire map of Europe, for all intents and purposes, is almost entirely under the control of one kind of fascist regime or another. So this really, the the, the summer of 1941 really represents the kind of apex of fascist rule. And we'll talk about in a few minutes about how that comes crashing down. But we got to talk about something else first that's really important. So Part and parcel with this fascist expansion across Europe, and particularly in Eastern Europe, one of the things that you see evolve alongside this is that these military conquests lay the groundwork and make possible a project of genocide. And so that is where we're going to focus our attention now. next. When we look to the Star Wars galaxy, we see that a lot of the authoritarian governments we talk about in Star Wars, whether that's the Galactic Empire, the First Order, the Final Order, all deliberately target specific populations for elimination. So we see, for instance, the elimination of the Geonosians in order to keep the Death Star quiet. We see the the destruction of the Lasat, or the assumed destruction of the Lasat, even though they are living somewhere else. The Mandalorians are targeted for elimination. There's the destruction of Alderaan, Hosnian Prime, Kijimi. So you have these regimes in the universe targeting these specific groups, these populations, for elimination. And that is, of course, something that we also see as central part of the history of fascism. So we've talked a little bit about Nazi anti-Semitic policy already in a pre-World War II and the passage of all of these different laws that happened within Nazi Germany. But when we, when we shift now to the, the conversation of genocide, they, for a long time, for, for many decades after World War II, there was a debate among historians about the extent to which the extermination of Jews was a kind of predetermined Nazi policy. So you had some historians who were arguing that you know, from the from the very beginning, you know, you go all the way back to Nazism's origins, you go back to the 1920s, you go to back to Mein Kampf, you can see this kind of goal, this aspiration to exterminate the Jews, and then that eventually gets realized into actual policy. And then you have, you had other historians who argued that it was something that actually kind of evolved later on. And so the kind of consensus now or the way that it is understood now is that Nazi policy towards Jews, both in Germany and then eventually the Jewish population in Europe, evolved through a process of what is known as cumulative radicalization. So when the Nazis took power in 1933 and even when World War I broke out in 1939, sorry, when World War II broke out in 1939, Extermination was not state policy, nor was it inevitable that it would be. So at both of those points, both in 33 and 39, when the Nazis come into power, it is not inevitable that they are going to pursue a policy of murdering and eliminating every Jewish person in Europe. Instead, extermination was the outcome, it was the end game of an increasing radicalization of policies. So in other words, what happens, what we see is that German policies towards and against Jews escalates to a point that it eventually reaches extermination. But that extermination was not the starting point. Even when we get to the start of World War II, and World War II breaks out, even as late as that, as 1939, it is not at that point inevitable that the Nazis are going to pursue this policy of eliminating, of murdering every single Jew in Europe. And so then the question is, how do they get there? And so we'll sort of talk about how they get to that point. If we stop, if we look at Nazi policy towards Jews, if we stop the clock in the middle of the 1930s, so post, let's say, the passage of the Nuremberg Law, so post 35, the position of Jews in Germany was not dissimilar to the position of African Americans in the south of the United States, which is to say that they were a segregated, marginalized Second-class citizens, and in fact, I, I can't get into that here, of course—but there's been a lot of like work on this that's talked about this. Nazi policymakers, in designing anti-Semitic laws, looked to Jim Crow segregation in the South as a kind of model for their own sorts of laws. So what is ha- so? If we again, if we stop the clock in the mid-1930s, the situation of German Jews is not great. It's pretty bad. But it is by no means unprecedented for the time. There are analogs for it. It, What they are going through at that particular moment is more or less what is happening to African Americans who are living in the the south of the U.S. under Jim Crow. So there is that, again, that's not to minimize it, still say it's bad, but it's not unprecedentedly bad. It's not something that was heretofore unseen in history. The first concentration camps... Open in Germany in 1933, so right after the regime takes power. But these camps that the regime opens in the 30s were not death camps, they were not extermination camps, nor do they exclusively house Jewish people. They were instead these camps that were made for various enemies of the regime. So, not just, let's say, race enemies, but then also communists and such, anyone who spoke out against the regime. And at least initially, a sentence to one of these camps was not considered a permanent sentence. So people would be sent to these camps, they would spend a defined sentence, and then they'd be left out. So you get the creation early on of concentration camps, but they are not the extermination camps that we know in our in our minds when we think of like an Auschwitz or a Treblinka or something like that. They're essentially these large facilities that are house enemies of the regime. And again, that is also not something that is unprecedented. If you go to the East, you go to the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. He's got the gulag, so he's got this system of camps for political enemies. So what the Nazis are setting up, again, is bad, but it is not unprecedentedly unforeseen bad. Prior to World War II, all throughout the 30s, The Nazi goal for Jews was emigration. So the idea was that they were going to make the situation for Jews in Germany bad enough that that German Jews would eventually decide to just leave. However, few nations were willing to accept Jewish refugees. So even when German Jews attempted to flee and go to other places, let's say into other countries in Western Europe or even to the United States those countries were not particularly receptive to German Jews. So this becomes a kind of obstacle to the initial goal. So the initial goal of the Nazi regime was emigration, that Jews are just going to eventually leave Germany, and then all that would be left behind were Aryan peoples. But this runs into a conflict of other nations aren't willing to take in these Jewish refugees. Once World War II breaks out, though, once we get into 1939 forward, you start to see further escalation of... Anti-Semitic policies, and, you know, we, as you know, we were talking earlier about German policies towards Jews in the 1930s. You saw this escalation process, right? We started first with there's a law passing banning them, banning German Jews from certain jobs. Then Nuremberg Laws, they're stripped of citizenship. Then you get Kristallnacht, you get these attacks on J- Jewish businesses. So you have over the 30s, even though you don't have extermination campaigns, you have this radicalization, this kind of steady raising of the temperature in terms of anti-Semitic policy the outbreak of World War II was going to escalate even further. So you get the invasion of Poland in the fall of 1939. And once the Germans occupy Poland, you have the establishment of the first Jewish ghettos. So you have the establishment of these enclosed communities where Polish Jews in particular were taken and that they were crammed in and they were forced to live in these very confined conditions that were kind of separated out. They weren't, camps per se, in the kind of like concentration or death camp sense, but they were these sort of communities in which they were enclosed and forced to live in these very prescribed areas. So you start, again, the, the, the ratcheting up, the radicalization, you start having this movement, movement towards ghettoization of forcibly moving these populations, the Jewish populations, into these defined areas. However, even at this even at the point of ghettoization, we're still not at extermination. The, the the conditions of of the Jewish ghettos that the Nazis set up are, of course, quite bad, and lots of people die from you know, poor sanitation, from lack of access to food, from work, and so on and so forth. But we're still not at a point of deliberate extermination. And in fact, even once the war breaks out, the Nazis have not yet totally given up on the emigration plan. In fact, in 1940, they start to explore what is known as the Madagascar Plan. So the Nazis, for a time, toyed around with an idea of deporting European Jews to the island of Madagascar off Africa. But then the war ends up stymieing these plans. So they kind of explore the the possibilities and logistics of it, but then Because of all the fighting and the commitment of resources and all that, the plan ultimately gets shelved and goes nowhere. So once the, you know, once you start getting into the early years of the war, you start to have the regime abandoning these initial plans of, well, we're just going to move the population out. So we're either going to force them to emigrate or we're going to just, you know, forcibly take the populations and plop them in Madagascar. So what starts really significantly radicalizing anti-Semitic policies And the targeting of Jews by the Nazis is the war in the east. So once we start getting into late 1939 and we get through 1940 and 1941, as the Germans, as the German army starts moving steadily east, you start to see this very, very intense escalation of anti-Semitic actions. So I've already talked about, you know, 1941 in June, you get the invasion of the Soviet Union. As part of this sweep east, you have the formation of what were known as the Einsatzgruppen. The Einsatzgruppen were death squads that would sweep into a territory after the German army had been in there. So you would have the German army come in as a kind of first wave and conquer the territory and push back whatever enemy forces they were fighting. Then these Einsatzgruppen would come in as a kind of second wave. And their job was to eliminate targeted populations. So particularly communists, Jews, any kind of political officials, any other enemies of the Nazis. And so it is because of these introductions of these Einsatzgruppen and their activities in the East that we see the first stage of the Nazi movement towards eliminationist genocide policy, and you get what has come to be known as Holocaust by bullets. And so what you start to see with these Einsatzgruppen in the East is you see elimination in large numbers of Eastern European Jews through mass shootings. So what would happen is these Einsatzgruppen would sweep into a particular territory or a town or a village. They would round up all of the Jews in that area. Then they would take them to a particular area, and then they would all be shot to death in large numbers. And then that would be repeated over and over again. And so as the Nazis moved steadily east, you had this happening. And so you had hundreds of thousands and then in turn millions of people being killed through these mass shooting events perpetrated by these death squads, by the Einsatzgruppen. This happens over the course of several months. And as these mass shootings are perpetrated, there starts to become a understanding or realization by nazi higher ups that this policy of mass shooting this policy of holocaust by bullets is not an effective strategy for liquidating these populations for a couple of reasons one is it's very resource expensive because you need to get lots you need to commit lots of people you need to use a lot of guns and bullets and ammunition and such also there is a increasing awareness and realization of the psychological effects that this is happening on the perpetrators. So what starts to be observed is that a lot of the members of these death squads are starting to drink heavily. Some of them are breaking down. Some of them are committing suicide. So for all these factors, it starts to become clear that mass shooting cannot be a viable long-term policy towards eliminating these populations at the numbers and scales that the regime wants to do. So you start to have a shift then from mass shootings into mass gassings, and you have the regime starting to construct these mobile gas vans where they would pack people into the back of these vans, and then the vans would drive around, and as they were doing so, gas was pumped into the back of these vans, and by the time the the vans reached a particular you know, a destination, a, a burial ground for the bodies. Everybody in the van would be dead. So it, w- so they start moving towards these attempts to industrialize killing. So they try to come up with these more, quote unquote, efficient means of eliminating Jewish population and other populations at a larger scale in ways that it would not get these psychological effects on the perpetrators themselves. And so. One of the things that you see that is not well-known about the Holocaust and how it is perpetrated is that the majority of Holocaust victims die by either shooting or gassing. So, you know, the, the extermination camps have, of course, for very obvious reasons, you know, become the kind of popular association with the Holocaust, with the Final Solution. But if you look in the numbers... The majority of victims of the Holocaust are killed before you get the opening of the camps. They are killed through this policy of either Holocaust by bullets or through these mass gassing events. But of course, even though, even though the gassing, even though the policy of gassing was seen as a kind of improvement and a, and a more efficient method than the, the mass shootings, even that ultimately was deemed insufficient for pursuing the objectives that the regime wanted to do. So in January of 1942, you have the convening of the Wannsee Conference, which is the meeting of these Nazi higher-ups in this resort town in Germany. And what you have at this conference is there is an official commitment to the policy of genocide. So this is where the regime, for all intents and purposes, doubles down and says that it is now going to be the policy of the state to exterminate every... Jewish person in Europe and later that year you see the opening of the first death camps, so the ones that we know your Auschwitz your treblinkas your buchenwalds and so on so you can see over this as we've talked about this kind of steady escalation and this this radicalization of policy where it's first you get in the 1930s and it's this policy of segregation and discrimination and marginalization then we get into, the outbreak of World War II and the early World War II, and you get, oh, you get the emergence of the ghettos, and we're going to, we're, you know, we're going to move, we're going to move Jewish people into these, into these segregated areas and into these towns and villages. You have the abandonment of the immigration plans, and then as you, as, you, as the war in the East expands, you start having this escalation of of actual extermination, beginning with mass shooting, then moving into mass gassing, and then ultimately the opening of the extermination camps. And then this, this escalation in terms of industrial killing, killing at this large scale. And so that is ultimately how we get to the policy of the final solution as we know it. And you have, and in the kind of middle of the war, the operation of these death camps in the East and Eastern Europe. So, you know, we've talked about how in the early years of World War II, the the Axis powers, Germany and Italy are able to achieve all of these victories in the west and in the east. Now we have to kind of shift the story and kind of talk about what ultimately leads to the collapse of fascism. So, the the blue the kind of the kind of turning point for the the Allied Powers and Bikens for the, for the Axis Powers is the failure of the invasion of the Soviet Union. So Operation Barbarossa is a failure. The, the Nazis are, are, are initially able to achieve a lot of success in terms of moving east and taking territory from the Soviet Union. But then in August of 1942, you have the Nazis invade uh, the town of Stalingrad, which is this kind of strategic city in the south of the Soviet Union. Fighting happens there until 1943. It is a significant victory for the Soviet Union, and it is after Stalingrad that the Soviet Union starts to reverse Nazi gains in the East. So, whereas up to that point, it had been this kind of steady sweep of the Nazis across Eastern Europe and into the Soviet Union, after Stalingrad, they begin to retreat, and you start having the Soviets pushing west. The other important factor of course, in terms of changing the tide of the war, is American entry into World War II after December 1941 and the the attacks on Pearl Harbor. the The Americans come to the into the European theater almost a year later, and it's not until uh, November 1942 they uh, they participate in what is known as Operation Torch, which is the invasion of North Africa. So, the the fighting in the West does not start at first in Western Europe, but actually in North Africa. And there's the the plan is pretty much to kinda of sweep across Northern Africa and then kinda of do a hook and then go up into the Italian peninsula and then via Italy getting into Western Europe. And so you have you know over the course of late nineteen forty two going into nineteen forty three, you have the Allies powers you kind know, of sweeping across Northern Africa. And then Ultimately, in July of 1943, you have the start of the invasion of Italy. So it starts first, they go from the Americans and the British and the French, they go first from North Africa, they go on to Sicily, they conquer Sicily, and then use Sicily as a kind of launch point for the invasion of the Italian mainland, and which they ultimately do in September of 43. And... It is the Allied invasion of Italy that ultimately spells the end for Mussolini. So remember I talked earlier before, and I talked about how when Mussolini came to power, that he's able to establish a dictatorship, but he's not the sole ruler of Italy. That he's got he's got somebody above him, he's got the king. And that becomes really important in terms of his downfall because it is after the invasion of Sicily, that the king, Victor Emmanuel, dismisses Mussolini from power. So he is removed from power. So for all of Mussolini's aspirations of being this kind of totalitarian leader who has singularly of the nation, he's ultimately removed from power by the guy who's above him, which is the king. And after Mussolini is deposed by the king, he is imprisoned, but... He is then subsequently rescued by the Nazis. The Nazis launched this kind of covert operation to bust Mussolini out of jail. And he is flown to northern Italy. And he is made the head of this kind of rump puppet state that the Nazis set up in the northern half of the Italian peninsula as the Allies are kind of gaining control of the southern half of Italy. Italy ultimately surrenders formally in September. They sign an armistice in September 1943. But because the Nazis have this foothold in the north, and they've made Mussolini the head of this old, like, half of Italy state in the north, fighting continues in Italy all the way up until the spring of 1945. So in April of 1945, the kind of Nazi-backed Italian government that exists in northern Italy for all intents and purposes pretty much collapses mussolini attempts to flee but he is captured and executed by italian communists all of the fighting through 1943 and the first half of 1944 happens in southern europe so all of the fighting in terms of the european theater and what the allies are doing all the while Western Europe is left untouched. And there had been a lot of like wrangling, particularly by Churchill and the British. There had been a big push for an invasion of Western Europe. But the Americans, and everyone else kind of dilly-dallyed on that and focused on this North Africa strategy. But finally, in June of 1944, you have the launching of D-Day and the invasion of Normandy. And so you have the actual opening up of a... Western Front in World War II through the invasion of France. And that ends up leading to the, the Allies kind of pushing east across France into Germany at the same time that you've got the Soviet Union kind of pushing west all the way through Eastern Europe and all kind of meeting towards the center of Germany. In March of 1945, the Allies invade Germany. The following month, Hitler commits suicide. Essentially because he wants to avoid the fate of Mussolini in Italy. He doesn't want to become captured and executed. And shortly thereafter, Nazi Germany surrenders and World War II comes to an end. So World War II is over by the time we get to the spring of 1945. And, you know, fascism is defeated for all intents and purposes in western europe at least as a kind of expansionist force i I, uh, there's not time in this episode to talk about spain has got like a kind of like fascist-ish government going on that actually endures all under franco that endures all the way into the 1970s I, i really can't get into that here but in terms of fascism as a kind of existential threat the way that it was posed by the Nazis and by the Italians, by the time you get to the spring of 45, that threat has been neutralized and defeated. And then ultimately what you have there, you know, the, the legacy of fascism, what fascism leaves Europe in the wake of its defeat in World War II is the deadliest war that the world had ever seen. If you look at, you know, the worldwide numbers in terms of deaths in World War II. And again, another thing that I can't get into here because it's kind of more complicated is what's going on in Japan. Japan has their own particular kind of situation where they they don't have quite like a fascist government, but they have kind of like a fascist-ish government. Again, it's a long story and I can't really talk about that here. But ultimately, you know, the legacy of World War II is 15 million soldiers worldwide are killed, about 45 million civilians worldwide are killed. In terms of the death toll just from the Nazi project of genocide that takes place, you're looking at anywhere between 10 to 15 million. So, of course, you know, part of the number is the 6 million Jews, and then you have other populations that are targeted. Poles, Slavs, communists, Romani, the disabled, and so on and so forth. Other undesirable populations, quote unquote. And so, you know, the ultimate legacy of fascism in europe is not unlike you know the ultimate legacy of a galactic empire or a first order which is mass death and destruction and so that's so so that's kind of where i want to wrap up the story of fascism again there there's there's much more that we could talk about in the context of the history of fascism you know you could talk about even though fascism it ha- suffers this defeat in World War II, it does endure in these other forms. Like I could talk about the example of Spain, but again, I can't really. There's not enough time to get into that. And then also that even though fascism as a kind of mass movement ends in the middle of the 20th century, you do have fascist-inspired movements that endure all the way up to the present that take notions and ideas about nationalism and race and so on from there, but present them in a different package, present them in a kind of lighter package. And, you know, you have neo-Nazi movements and so on. So th- there's a whole kind of panoply in, in the world of, like, post-fascism that I can't really get into. But, you know, for our purposes, we'll, we'll end the story of fascism at the end of World War Two. So now that we've kind of talked about fascism and the ideology and some of the history... You know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the Star Wars of it all along the way, but I'm going to stop and now, you know, take what we, what we know about the real world example of fascism and kind of compare it to what we see in, in the Star Wars world. You know, so if we, you know, we've talked a little bit about the galactic empire along the way. So if we look at the empire, it has many features in common with the real world fascist regimes that we talked about. We've got the totalitarian element. You know, you have Palpatine declaring himself an emperor in Revenge of the Sith. And then by the time we get to A New Hope, he's dissolved the Galactic Senate. And now he's ruling singularly. He's kind of concentrated all political power in the Empire in himself. So you've got that element. You know, we've talked about the element of propaganda a little bit with things like Empire Day and Imperial propaganda and so on. We, of course, have the militarism element with the construction of Star Destroyers and the Death Star and you know, moving away from clones into recruits and, you know, pulling in regular civilians to fight in the Empire. You've got that whole angle. You've got even a kind of analog to racism. You've got the fact that the Galactic Empire is sort of human-centered and human-centric and doesn't really allow participation or inclusion of the non-human species in star wars like, you know one of the things they talk about is how like you know part of palpatine's strategy during the clone wars was to make the separatists such that their entire leadership was non-humans was aliens. And that was seen as a you know a way of vilifying non-human species. So then by the time you get to the galactic empire, you have this kind of supremacy of humans over non-humans in the galaxy. So you've got that element. You of course, you know, we already touched it before, but you've got the element of genocide, where you have the deliberate targeting of different populations for elimination. So you've got all of these features that are very much in common with fascist regimes and fascism. There's one critical way, though, that I want to suggest that in the case of the empire, it may not quite fit the bill, at least completely for fascism, which is that it is missing one of the crucial elements. And It was the first one that I talked about when we were talking about defining fascism, which is this palingenetic element, which is this notion of rebirth, of kind of a restoration of a glorious past. This is an element that is not all that present within the Galactic Empire, at least that outwardly. Like there's that there's that line from Palpatine when he's talking to Anakin in his office in Revenge of the Sith, where he says. Once more, the Sith will rule the galaxy, and we shall have peace. There, he's a little bit kind of doing a kind of callback to, oh, you know, we're returning to to the glory days of Sith rule and the Sith Empire, and we're trying to recreate that. But that isn't, of course, the outward face of the Galactic Empire, because nobody knows that Palpatine is a Sith Lord. So maybe you could say covertly, it has that that element of rebirth, but at least overtly it does not have that. There is, however a regime and entity within Star Wars that we have been introduced to that does have that element. I am referring, of course, to the First Order. The First Order has all of the other elements that I have talked about in the context of the Empire and fascism, the totalitarian angle, militarism, genocide, racism, all that. But it also has this palingenetic element, which is there is an overt message within the First Order of we are trying to recreate the galactic empire and we are trying to bring the galaxy back to the glory days of security and safety and stability. This kind of imagined golden age that exists over the empire. And that is reflected both in the rhetoric and then also in terms of the symbolism, the fact that they have the stormtrooper armor, the star destroyers, all of that. So there is this very overt calling back to the past that happens in the first order. And you know, I even think about in terms of the other elements of fascism. Like I think about in the Phasma novel, there we meet Captain Cardinal, and one of the things that we learn there is about how th- how the First Order recruits, how they are they are indoctrinated. They've got these like propaganda tapes where they're listening to them even as they're sleeping. They're pumping in First Order ideas. And uh, there's that whole notion of you know it happens with Finn, with a lot of the First Order recruits, where they're taking children from birth. And they are raising them in this cloistered system where they are growing up entirely under the first order and inculcate entirely under the under first order propaganda and ideology and worldview. So in a lot of those ways, the first order kind of is a ex- more extreme version of what exists under the Galactic Empire. So I think you can you can make a case that for those reasons that the first order was strictly speaking. More fascistic than the Galactic Empire, if we're using our definition of fascism and those elements, I would make the case that there are elements of those are present in the Galactic Empire, but I think they are present to an even greater degree in the First Order, and the First Order has some of those elements that are not there in the Galactic Empire, particularly this notion of this look back to the past and a return of the glory days. So, yeah, just a little bit, a little bit of a nuance there in terms of our definitions and such. So. On that note, we will wrap up this episode. So the Empire trilogy is officially closed out. Uh, I, I, I hope that uh, I hope that all three of these these episodes are you know our look at, at Rogue One, the discussion of super weapons, and then also this discussion of fascism it gives you a kind of different way of both looking at Star Wars and also different ways of connecting Star Wars to the real world, which is really the kind of objective of this show. So so I hope. Uh, I hope you learned something about, uh, you know, about fascism, about what it is, about what it was in practice, and found some ways to kind of connect it to to Star Wars, ways that it kind of appears in the Star Wars universe. We can see kind of direct analogs in the franchise. So what to expect on the next episode? Episode 34 will drop on February 28th. And in that episode, I will be taking a look back at The Book of Boba Fett. And actually, you know, I talked about this is the end of a trilogy of episodes. Episode 34 will be the start of another trilogy of episodes. It's going to be three Book of Boba Fett episodes. The first one that will be coming out, the next episode, we'll be looking just back at the season and sort of talking about the story that gets told. And then the episodes, the two episodes after that will be kind of Book of Boba Fett-inspired episodes. So on episode 34, I'm going to look back at the seven episodes of the Book of Boba Fett, what I'm assuming is the first season. We don't, at the time that I'm recording this and that it's coming out, we do not have an official announcement of a second season. But I'm assuming, I'm assuming I'm safe in saying that this is a look back at the first season of the Book of Boba Fett. And joining me for that look back will be Alberto Calderon of Radio Rebellion, a Star Wars podcast. So look forward to that. Until then, make sure you're subscribed to the show. Please rate and review the show if you're able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do so at a larger view pod. And until next time, look for the Force, and you will always find me.